Travis, what is your ideal screenwriting life? Uh, well, you know, I moved to Los Angeles to try and get into TV writing. So I, I've been writing features much longer, so I, I have more experience with that. But TV writing is where I want to be at. You know, get the uh, uh, stories of working with other people's characters is, is a fun challenge uh, rather than, you know, just being God all the time <laughs> with your own stuff. So I uh, thought that would be that's probably my best place to be would be TV writing. Plus, I write so fast, you know, pumping out what, like six, seven scripts a year. So TV writing, you know, they need to have that speed to get material out, you know, in time for production. So that would be appealing to you to be in a writer's room oh, absolutely. for yeah. like, what is it, 15 hours a day sometimes? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, getting to, especially bouncing ideas off of other people too. You know, when you're writing features, you're just kind of by yourself at your computer and in a writer's room, you've got, you know, between like four and 10 other people that were all bouncing ideas off each other to figure out the best possible story for the show. So have you envisioned that? Do you have like this dream board or is there something where you're like, you know what, this is this is what my ideal life looks like and I need to create that. You know, I have never done a dream board. I have seen it, I've seen it in shows and movies where characters have that sort of thing, but I've never done it for myself. I just kind of uh, keep, you know, my board of, of what, what stuff I'm writing right now, you know, keeping track of where I need to be and, and deadlines and all that stuff. But uh, I've never really made an official visual element of, of where I want to be, you know. <laughs> Maybe I should. That would be. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. When, when That's something to look at, you know. Right. And, <laughs> <laughs> so have you submitted uh, spec scripts to TV shows? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I got a manager starting last year. And so it was at the very end of staffing season, though. So she was only get me able, you know, a couple of read uh, piles. Um, this year, staffing season's not started quite yet. They're doing, you know, filming the pilots right now as we speak. So um, I'm already got on a couple of people's read lists uh, to consider me for staffing. So fingers crossed that that works out well. Um, and then, you know, obviously, I've, if I see any assignments, you know, on any of like the, the, the different screenwriting boards, you know, where producers are looking for something specific, you know, you send them a, a spec so that they can see if, if your style works with what they need to hire for. So. An ideal show to write for or shows? I'm a big fan of anything superhero related. So like The Flash, Supergirl, uh, Superman and Lois that's going to be coming out this fall. Uh, Arrow unfortunately is leaving. However, they're going to be doing the spinoff of Arrow and the Canaries. And I'm all on board with that. Um, the DC network where they've got, you know, the Titans and uh, Doom Patrol and stuff like that. Anything with superheroes, I'm on board with. Um, any kind of like cool sci-fi stuff. Um, you know, like a, a manifest that's on is is, is fun. Um, I like a lot of anything with superheroes or sci-fi. I'm on board with. Uh, I know a lot of people watch the HBO stuff. I feel like I'm the only person in Hollywood who doesn't have HBO, so <laughs> I haven't seen Game of Thrones or Succession or any of these big things. I definitely need to be seeing. <laughs> Put that on the dream board. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, for fourteen was it fourteen bucks a month or something like that? Right, so, right, yeah. yeah. There you go. Manifest yeah. it. What is it about the superhero genre that you're attracted to? Um, I feel, okay, so I've never been a fan of like the super serious um, stories where it's like the slice of life type stuff because I'm already living life. I don't have superpowers. I'm a Superman fanatic because he gets to do so much cool stuff and at the end of the day still is a person with his wife and, and has a job and all this stuff, you know? So um, I think it's a big Thing of living the fantasy and, and being able to live within the fantasy while you're writing those types of characters and, and situations. 
Um, and even watching it, you know, you're only watching for 45 minutes plus commercials, but you're taken away to some other place. You don't have to think about your life while you're watching the Flash, you know, rescue Iris from Gorilla Grodd or something, you know, the telepathic gorillas, people flying and, and running around super speed. Like we don't have that in our life. So uh, I feel like that appeals to me because I like nobody wants to live in their life 24 seven. You know, that's why Halloween is a big thing. You know, you get to yeah. be someone else for a night. Well, you get to be somebody else while you're watching the show, living vicariously through them or, or writing those type of characters, uh, you know, imagining. Because I feel I feel like most writers probably imagine themselves in the characters that they're writing and, and kind of living vicariously for that amount of time, you know, because like you got to figure out, okay, what would they do? What would I do? How is that different? Um, so yeah, I, I, I've always wanted to have superpowers. So I feel like that's my, my in there. Uh, big comic book fan. I have a huge Superman collection. Um, I, ever since I was like six years old, I got my first Superman comic book and I've been obsessed ever since then. I have like over 3,000 pieces of Superman memorabilia. So oh, yeah, wow. I'm, I'm obsessed with it. Oh my goodness. Uh, so yeah, that's a long answer for why I like superhero stuff. But <laughs> No, that's interesting because while we were setting up, we were just talking about sort of the 24-hour news cycle yeah. and it seems like we're just fed so much bad news all the time. All that, the time. That yeah. it must be nice to, to have that different mindset. Get that escape, yeah. right. So, you know, why, why do I want to hear about all the terrible things going on in the world when I can watch, okay, a terrible thing going on in the city that this guy in tights is going to fix, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And not spandex. Yeah. <laughs> that they was... change the costume so much now. You know, it used to be, like, it used to be spandex. So, you know, you watch, like, uh, Superman, you know, from back in George Reeves' days, you know, in the 30s and 40s, like, or the 40s, and and he was obviously wearing spandex, and now it's like this weird, like Under Armour stuff, where you can see like all the designs throughout the whole costume and stuff. So, <laughs> right. Maybe it's more aerodynamic. I don't know. Right, and it's breathable. <laughs> yeah, it breathes. Yeah. You grew up in Michigan. Yeah, uh, Monroe. It's a small town. It's, it's here. Okay. <laughs> uh, little. Where's General Motors? Yeah. Well, oh, okay. well, so Detroit is like up here, and ah. then I'm down here. So you know, you go up a little. You go up to here to the Lansing, you know, and uh, down here you got Ohio. So I'm like right okay. at the border between Michigan and Ohio, uh, about 30 minutes south, because you know we don't we don't do miles in Michigan. It's it's how long the distance to drive there is in minutes or hours. You know. That's so, true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we drive about 30 minutes north to get to Detroit, or 30 minutes south to get to Toledo, Ohio. So. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Uh, small town. It's maybe population like three hundred fifty thousand. So it's not like a tiny, tiny town, but it's definitely much not a city size. And were there writers, people that you could emulate, or was this more based on General Motors and sort of Lee Iacocca yeah, was considered? Yeah, most of the stuff. So in well, because we're not even far north, far enough to Detroit to have a lot of General Motors workers. So in Monroe, we have the Edison Power Plant. And they're them and then, um, oh, what's it called? I don't remember the name of it. There's a glass factory that also was like, the, the two of them were like the two main employers in my town uh, with, with the power plant and the glass place. We also are the home of uh, Lazy Boy Chairs. They have their, oh, nice. their world corporate offices there in Monroe as well. Um, so they have like, you know, plenty of people working there. Um, that's yeah. Those are pretty much the main employers in in that town. So, uh, but I grew up with with parents who are teachers, so they were you know working in the school districts and stuff. Oh, so they fostered a love of books. Oh yeah, um, and writing even. Like my mom's biggest punishment for us as kids uh, was writing 
by hand, like so. Let's say we said a swear word. <laughs> she would make us look up the definition of the swear word in the in the dictionary, and then write the definition by hand, like between fifty to hundred times, depending on the severity of the curse word. And that was her primary form of punishment for us: was having to handwrite things, or like if we did something wrong, we had to do like the, you know, you see on the Simpsons when he's writing on the chalkboard, like I will not, blah blah blah. Right. You had to do that sort of thing. So. I still have terrible handwriting, though. So would, she couldn't read what I was writing, but you know, uh, you would think that my handwriting would improve after writing the same thing four thousand times in, in an hour. But yeah, not so much. So then you never viewed it as punishment. It sounds like you. Well, there yeah, was something no, you found I, in it. You know, it, it kind of started. You know, since I'm already writing stuff, I'm like, well, as long as I'm having to write, I'm as well write my own stuff too. And I, you know, I won my first uh, short story contest in kindergarten. Uh, wrote like a, is, the story was a da how daddy tried to catch the bat. Uh, we seemed to get a bat would get into the house every winter. <laughs> Me and my dad would have to be the ones to take because my sister and my mom were terrified of, of bats, you know. So we would go down there with like a uh, tennis racket and a fishing net, you know, and like trap it between it and take it outside and stuff like that. So, oh, nice. Catch and release. Yeah. Um, so we did that. Uh, you know, I, I wrote that, like I said, it was like kindergarten's like five, six years old and stuff, wrote that, um, won a contest. And then that same contest, it was uh, called the Young Authors Competition. And it was in all the, all the elementary schools and junior high and high schools in, in the area basically had, you know, one person per grade got sent there. And I got sent there like six times. I did like kindergarten, like third grade, fifth grade, a couple times in high school, you know, so. Uh, always been writing since forever, basically. <laughs> when you told them that you wanted to come to Los Angeles to be a TV writer, sure. what was their impression? Uh, it, it, kind of mixed, um, you know, because there's obviously no guarantee writing is like the hardest thing to make money at, you know, so um, growing up even like when I, you know, wanted to do something in the arts, you know, because I, I used to sing choirs and stuff too when I was growing up. So like I wanted to be a singer for a while, I wanted to be a writer, be a poet, you know, um, all this other stuff. So. They're like, well, you know, that's great, but you need to find a way to make money too, you know. So, um, because like I, I've even mentioned in my, in my book how hard it is to be, like there's a statistic in the book that it's actually, there are more working football players in the NFL than there are working writers in the WGA. Wow. <laughs> so it's hugely, you know, hard to get into because there's so many people doing it and so many talented people doing it too, you know. So you could be an amazing writer in your hometown and you're just one of a number out here in LA. I think you've said that It Happened One Night is one of your favorite films. Yeah, that's my favorite. Oh, film. it is? Yeah, okay. um, I love that movie. It, and I feel like even though it was, you know, came out in the 30s, I feel like the, the, dialogue on it like there's a few quirky things you know that no one would ever say nowadays that was like slang for, for that time but for the most part the story and a lot of the dialogue could even still come out today I feel like and still be a viable thing you'd have to change you know some of the what they consider risque things you know and, and update it and stuff but I, I think it's fantastic and you know the acting in it is great and yeah, I love, I think it's like the one flawless. I know a lot of people think, uh, will say Casablanca as like their flawless movie. Casablanca is great, but I, I'm a big, big fan of It Happened One Night. So it's Claudette Colbert and um, uh, not- uh, Clark Gable. Clark, Clark yeah. Gable, okay. And so he's this journalist and she's like this wealthy- Yeah, she's like an heiress, mm -hmm. uh, like okay. a, a Paris Hilton type of person oh, nice. back okay. then, you know? Uh -huh. and, and her dad wants her to marry, you know, 
a certain person, the person she wants to marry, he doesn't like. And so she, he's like willing to like wanting to like disown her and stuff. So she runs away to go and marry the guy she wants to marry. And so the dad puts out basically like a bounty on his own daughter to find, you know, if you can bring her back to me, like you'll get so much money. And uh, this reporter who's an out of work reporter uh, who's not on good terms with his boss <laughs> accidentally sees her like on a bus. They end up riding the bus together and he kind of like ends up trailing her and uh, makes the deal with her that he won't turn her in for the money if she gives him the exclusive on everything that's happening. So they end up going cross country together with him taking notes. And of course, they slowly fall in love along the way, even though you know, they start off, you know, despising each other like most romances seem to do in movies. Don't like each other when you meet, but by the end, you're in love. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's a fantastic film. Travis, when did you move to Los Angeles and why? 2016. Uh, August 2016. Yeah, I've only been out here a couple of years. Oh, wow, okay. Um, and again, because I wanted to get into television writing. Like, you can write features anywhere, but if you want to do TV, you got to be out here where the rooms are. Um, you know, they might film in other places. You know, like Vancouver is a big place to film because of all the film incentives that they have, you know, like tax budget, tax breaks, and stuff like that. Uh, but the rooms are all still out here in Los Angeles. There's a couple in New York, but mostly out here. Um, so since I wanted to do TV writing, I kind of had to be where the rooms are and moved out here uh, to do that. <laughs> and what were you doing prior to 2016? What was life like uh, for Travis? So I moved here from Virginia Beach. Um, so I, like I said, I'm originally from Michigan. I moved from Michigan to Virginia in 2011 uh, to be a massage therapist. Yeah, I've done a lot yeah. of jobs in my life. <laughs> uh, so I moved there to be a massage therapist, did that for a few years, kind of got burned out on it. Um, and then was working as a, uh, a dispatcher for an alarm security company. Oh, uh, wow. But also, yeah, and, but still writing on, on the side, you know, for, for writing. So like I got hired when I was working there, got hired to write eight episodes of a sci-fi series in the UK that to the best of my knowledge still has not come out. <laughs> and that was, you know, years ago now. Um, and wrote like a bunch of different features for like independent producers all around the country. Like a lot of people, when I tell them out here that, oh yeah, I was getting jobs in Virginia and they're like, oh, well, that's different out here. No, I was writing for Hollywood producers, like low budget Hollywood producers from Virginia. Uh, you know, so I was still doing the writing, but doing all these other odd jobs on the side as well. And did you fly out or drive? I drove. Uh, you drove. I, yeah, so I actually, it took me a couple of days to get out here because I, I drove from Virginia Beach. I drove up to Michigan so I could see my parents because I hadn't seen them in a couple of years since I had moved. Um, I still haven't seen my sister even since, when was the last time I saw Naoka? Uh, like 2011, I think. Like I think it was like the first year I had moved away and I came back for Christmas. That's the last time I even seen my sister. So hopefully she comes out to my wedding <laughs> when we have okay. it later this year. Do you so. want to address, do you want to give her an invitation right now or? <laughs> well, she, she knows <laughs> okay. she's, I was, uh, uh, she's, she's one of my best men basically. So oh, okay. <laughs> she's, nice. I got, I have groom's people, you know, instead there of There we go. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I had to have to have my sister in there, but yeah, so I moved. So when I was moving, I drove up to Michigan, spent like a day or so with my parents, uh, and then drove the rest of the way out here. Like I made a couple stops like overnight because it's too far to drive in one thing. So I think I stopped in Kansas City and then a second stop in Phoenix where my cousin lives and uh, hung out with him for a day and then got out here and then had my first Hollywood meeting like two days after I arrived. So uh, with the manager, it didn't go so well, uh, unfortunately. Um, but you know, it's first meeting, can't really expect because I didn't know what to do at my first meeting. All my Experience before then was either meetings on the phone or, or via email, you know, so. 
feel like I babbled like I did, like I'm doing now. <laughs> well, I'm actually, uh, maybe just uh, leaving out names to protect the sure. uh, innocent or not so innocent. Okay. What, what was, what do you think went poorly about it? Um, the fact that I didn't really know how to conduct a meeting, uh, first off, so I was kind of going off on various tangents on all my various projects. Uh, and it was uh, the manager, so they want to know like your best thing and what you do, um, not everything you've ever written, kind of thing, you know. And so I was sitting there going, oh, I've written this horror, and I've written this sci-fi, and I've written this thing for TV and movies and blah blah. And it's like when you get done so many things, you don't want to mention all those things because nobody cares at a certain point, you know, like huh. um, especially when things aren't being produced. So uh, that's my. The one advice I probably break my own advice often enough and stuff is don't tell everyone don't, when you're when you're having a meeting with the manager don't tell them every single thing up front you know tell them like, like a date things. yeah, yeah you know, oh I've had some bad days where I've done that for sure um, yeah okay so like you're going on so a like date, going going right? off way too on way too many tangents telling way like oversharing like crazy um, did not go well and then not really knowing I guess like where you fit in the industry um, is kind of hurtful. Because uh, you want, like there's so many people out there who want to do all these different things. You go to like a networking thing and you hear people who are like 8,000 hyphenates. Oh, I'm a writer, director, producer, uh, art director, blah, 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 you know. Or people who are like, oh yeah, I can write everything. I write drama and horror and comedy. No, you don't. <laughs> you write like one thing really well. You might be interested in writing these other things. You might even have scripts and those other things, but there's no way you write equally well across the board in every genre. That's just not happening. <laughs> Do you think it was just being eager? And, um, and maybe, you know, the industry hadn't beaten you down and so you didn't know and you were just being innocently eager about um, it? Possibly. Um, but I, I feel like, again, that kind of goes with like a naivete about how the industry really works. Um, you know, having, again, not having had any in-person time, like face-to-face -face with, with Hollywood industry folks. It was just, you know, sending out an email or, or being on the phone with somebody. Um, reading screenwriting books and stuff, you know, they, they usually tell you like how to write the scripts. They don't really, there's not really a lot of business-oriented books out there. So um, you don't really learn how to conduct a meeting very well unless you're actually doing it because you can have all the theory on it you want, but until you're face-to-face -face with somebody, uh, knowing how you're gonna behave with them, totally different. When you finished that meeting, did you already have an intuition about this didn't go well? Yeah, kind of. Um, kind of like when you go for an interview for a job, you kind of have an idea if it went well or not. Right. You know, but, you know, I've had meetings with producers too where I have no clue how it went when I walked out because they're so straight-faced. They're not giving anything away. Right. And then like, so you could think you did terribly and then they call you the next day want you to come and write their thing, you know. So it's... Hard to gauge usually, but I feel like in that particular case, I kind of knew that it wasn't going to go the way I wanted it to go when I walked out. So uh, when they start when they start uh, checking their watch or their phone and stuff partway through the the meeting, you know that's not a, a good thing. <laughs> with the phone thing, it might just be typical etiquette these days with with people you know sure. being glued to their communication. But when you left that meeting, what was your feeling about? Being in LA, you'd been here what two days? Yeah, I, I had gotten here Sunday night of that week, and the interview, or the meeting with her was Tuesday morning. So yeah, like a day and a half maybe. Um, I know when I was moving out here, people were telling me about like 
all the traffic and I'm gonna be sitting on the freeway forever. But I'm, again, since I'm originally from Detroit area, like nobody lives in Detroit, but people work there, you know? So it's like the, the commute that way. So the only difference is here, it's much shorter distances in the traffic. So, um, but the weather is fantastic. I hate snow, which is why I wanted to get out of Michigan to begin with. And the snow followed me to Virginia because a friend of mine who lives in, in Virginia where I moved to told me, oh, there's no snow here ever. Like <laughs> first year I moved there, Blizzard of like 13 inches. Oh, <laughs> Every wow. year I lived there, it was at least eight inches. Out here, I have not had a single day of snow. It's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> so then you, you still had your hopes up or did you oh, need absolutely. like a, a down I, day? I, you, I'm not one to easily get down, especially knowing, like I said, how hard it is anyway. So um, it's just sticking notch on the belt kind of thing of, oh, here's another no. Okay, moving on. Let's... You can't just let the nose get to you. Otherwise, like you will drop out of this business like immediately. Like even like Spielberg is even getting nose and he's Steven Spielberg, you know. That's so true. Yeah. you're always going to get the nose and because you can't uh, you can't appease everybody's tastes and everything, you know. So like I've had I've had scripts that in one contest doesn't even get to quarterfinals. Another one will be a semifinalist, give them a top two or something like that. You have people when having getting notes on scripts where one person will love this scene and talk about how amazing the scene is. And the next person is like, oh, this is a terrible scene. It needs to change. And it's like they're talking about the exact same thing. And one person loves it. One person hates it. So, you know, you can't really base your feelings on the industry on what one person's opinion is. You know, you kind of got to keep, keep going and keep trying and getting your stuff out there. When did you start calling yourself a screenwriter? Probably my second or third script. Like my first script, it was kind of... You know, I was writing about like a personal experience and I was just kind of, it was almost like therapy for me at the time. And so then probably my second script, I was an aspiring screenwriter. Like I, I was like, oh, this is fun. I want to do this. <laughs> and I probably about my third, maybe fourth script is when I was like, oh yeah, I'm a screenwriter. Like I'm not getting paid yet, but I'm a screenwriter. Like this is where I'm going. Uh, and then my fifth script was a paid script. So I was like, I already made it come true. Awesome. It wasn't very big paid because it was a small like local Person, I think it got paid like 500 bucks or something like that um, to write a feature uh, that never got made. <laughs> so, but yeah, I probably my third or fourth script is when I went from being an aspiring screenwriter to like, yes, this is what I'm doing with my life. Did someone say to you, don't call yourself an aspiring writer? Oh, you will always get haters who say like, if you're not making money at it, you shouldn't call yourself a screenwriter. Like, uh, you know, they're like, oh, you wouldn't call yourself a plumber because you fixed your own toilet. Well. I'm still writing screenplays and, you know, I'm not doing it just for myself. I'm still trying to get my stuff out into the world, whether it's being paid or not. Because, you know, when you're writing a spec script, you're not pay paid for writing that spec. So are you not a screenwriter because it hasn't sold yet? Like, you still wrote the thing. It takes time, effort, energy, heart, blood, soul. Everything goes into these scripts, you know. So you're absolutely, if you're, if you're actually doing the work, you're absolutely a screenwriter. Um, I feel like the only way that you're not is if you're someone who says you're a screenwriter and aren't doing any work towards it. I've met people who are like, I'm a screenwriter. Okay, great. What have, what have you worked on? Oh, well, I haven't written anything yet, but I want to be. Welcome to Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I heard um, I, you know, on Twitter, I, I follow a lot of showrunners and, and stuff like that. And uh, there was a showrunner, I'm trying to remember who it was now, that it was like a couple weeks ago that they met someone at a party 
Um, they knew who she was, you know, what what show she was on, and they're like, oh well, you know, I would love to write on your show. That it's fantastic, and they had built a rapport before he brought it up, which is good. Um, and then she's like, okay, well, sure, send me over a sample. He didn't have any samples. He had uh, not written a single thing, but he's telling her how much he wants to write for her show. Wow. And yeah, it's like. Why why are you bringing that up if you don't have anything to to show and prove yourself, you know, to them? Um, because like, oh, well, in that case, I want to go and play, you know, baseball, but <laughs> I don't have the experience on it I want to. So as soon as you're doing the work, you're a screenwriter. Okay, that makes sense. And so what I was also wondering is, did did you feel like you held yourself back because you were calling yourself for I think after your second script and aspiring right I don't think I was holding myself back I think it was uh, I think it was more of like I didn't have the nerve to call myself that yet because I was so inexperienced um, and I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted to do and be with you know have the, as my career it was just something at the time was for fun because like. Like I said, the first script I wrote is like a therapy for a situation I was in at the time. My second script, I wrote a Superman script, not knowing that you can't write, you know, uh, material because of like uh, copyright infringements and stuff like that. Didn't know that it was a thing yet at the time. I was in my like early 20s, so didn't really know that you couldn't write a Superman script and send it out there. But it was fun and r figured out what does and doesn't work in the writing, especially for action sequences and um, but then by my, my, my third and fourth thing, like I said, I was starting to write my own original material at that point then, and uh, that's when I became a screenwriter as opposed to just somebody who has fun doing it. How do you motivate yourself to write every day? So this is a discussion I've had with other writers because I'm very prolific and that I write, like I said, lots of material a year, and I write every day if I can help it. Um, Occasionally I can't because I've got like too many chores and errands <laughs> I have to run where I can't find time to sit there. Um, but I'm of the belief that if you if you want to be a writer, you need to actually be writing. Um, so I don't need motivation. I just need to get my butt in the seat and do the work. Um, might not always be fantastic stuff that I'm pumping out. If you know if, if I'm sitting there just to write, just to, to get the pages out, but. Um, the act of writing is something that you need to do every single day or as frequently as you can in order to keep doing it. Because if you write just when you're motivated to write, like if you're not motivated to write for like months at a time, you're not going to get any material written. Um, and if you, especially since I want to do TV writing, like you can't just be like, oh, sorry, boss, I don't, I don't feel like writing my episode today. I'll, I'll get it to you next week if I feel like it. It doesn't fly. So you kind of have to motivate it or not. You can't just wait for the muse to hit. You have to, you know, force the muse sometimes and, and tell her, okay, get your wings in here because I'm writing now. It's time. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, I don't really go with needing to motivate. It's just I'm, I have to write. I'm writing. It's something I have to do. It's not something I always want to do because sometimes you're like, oh, I would much rather go to the beach today than be sitting at my computer screen, but you're not going to get stuff done that way. So I, I don't need the motivation to write. I just, I am the motivation. I write, I'm a little writing machine basically. So stick me in front of my computer, pages are going to get pumped out. <laughs> well, one interesting thing about like having a day job is I found that I, then I always wanted to be doing something else, but sure. then once you had that free time, I don't know if it's fear or what it is, then all of a sudden it's like, ah, and then you find all these excuses. Yeah. Do you ever fall prey to that? Oh, absolutely, because um, I do have a day job, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so uh, 
Luckily, my day job, I have plenty of downtime at the day job where I can do some writing, you know, there. I can't be in final draft at the work computer, <laughs> right. uh, but I can be, you know, like outlining in a notebook or something like that, you know, to at least get some ideas down to, to fix issues I may have in the script at home. Um, but then, yeah, like I, I am not good at staying awake late, like at all, like midnight, I'm, I'm out. Um, so I get home from my day job at like 1030 at night. I have enough time to, to walk the dog with my fiance and then watch like maybe an episode of TV and then I'm gone. So I do all my writing in the morning when I wake up. I'm up you know, between 8 and 8.30 every morning, uh, pump out between two to four hours worth of writing before I go to work every day. So, and then on my days off, I used to write a ton, uh, but I was getting super stressed apparently and so my fiance put a stop to that. <laughs> She's like, nope, on your days off, you're not writing, sorry. Uh, if you need to for a... a uh, like a deadline or something like that. You know, I, I just had to do a rewrite um, on, a, on a script feature of mine that's going to be getting filmed in a couple months. And, and so they had their their notes for the final rewrite. And they're like, okay, we need to have this by this day so we can get it to our actors and stuff. So um, I got to write on, on those days. Uh, it's more of like one of those I get to kind of scenarios. Okay. I feel very bad if I went a whole day and didn't write anything. So because um, I, I just feel like I should be writing. You know, uh, it's to the point now where once you do something, it becomes habit. You know, uh, what is it like if you do something for 30 days, it becomes a habit for you and you'll keep doing it. So writing every day, I, at this point, it's it's not a, oh, I feel like writing today. It's I have to write. I can't do anything else until I get my pages done. So do you have this ritual in the morning where you like get your coffee ready? Oh, I don't, I don't drink coffee. Oh, you're not, oh, you don't. No, <laughs> I, I was force fed coffee as a child because it does the same thing that as Ritalin in young children because heard, of the difference yeah. in metabolism versus adults. So, you know, the in children, they burn through the caffeine much faster. And it has like a Ritalin type effect where it kind of calms them down. Ah. Uh, and Ritalin, when I was a kid, like gave me really bad stomach cramps. And so the doctor was like, oh, well, give him a cup of coffee every morning. I'll do the same thing. So. Uh, okay. So yeah, so I had to drink coffee every morning before school from the age of six to the age of sixteen, and I so I won't drink it now. My my fiance loves coffee, and I think it's gross. I won't, okay. I won't put it in my mouth. <laughs> well, it's an expensive habit if you it get the is, right beans. Especially if you're going with Starbucks, you know, where you're dropping like four or five bucks on a cup, like <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, so I I don't really do that. But uh, I definitely I wake up. Um, if sometimes I'll go work out, like I'm, I'm trying to do like the New Year's resolution thing of hitting the treadmill a couple times a week. Sometimes I do it as many times as I need to, but not usually. Um, so, you know, hit the treadmill if, if I'm able, if I have the energy to do it. Um, otherwise, hit the computer. I have the really bad habit of checking my email first. So I, I know I've heard many people say, don't do that. Like, you know, once, like Stephen King says, don't check your email until you've already done your morning writing, then check your email later on in the day. I can't do that. I have to, I've got too many things coming in from producers, newsletters of where I like, I want to read these articles and stuff, you know. Um, so I'll, I'll set aside the articles, but I at least got to go through. I'm also very organized in my email. Um, most people, you know, they'll have like their junk mail just sitting there forever and have like 10, you look on their phone, they've got 10,000 emails that are unread. Yeah, I go through meticulously and I even have folders for every topic. So I will like move, the, so if it's a, you know, if it's a, on a certain movie that like I'm talking back and forth, like right now I'm, I'm working on a web series. And so like if I get an email from the producer for the web series, it goes to his folder. And if I get oh, something wow. that is from my fiance about our wedding plans, I'll move that to our wedding folder. And I'll, you know, so, I only ever have in my inbox 
like at most like 10 or 12 emails because I read things and then file it away to where it goes and, and delete all my junk mail before I read anything I need to read. So that takes probably way too much time to, to, to do all that. And then I start writing once I've done all my email and my and checking like the social media briefly and um, writing probably start. So I wake up at eight, uh, probably start writing nine, nine thirty, depending on how much junk mail there is to sift through. Uh, and then I'll write until about like 10.30 or 11 when we gotta walk the dog. Then I'll make breakfast for my, me and my fiance. And then usually have a working breakfast eating there while I'm still typing away pages till about like 11, maybe 12, and then take a shower, start getting ready for my day job, and then out the door by one. So uh, yeah, so writing for, like I said, between two to four hours a day, every day before going to work. What's Stephen King's logic uh, for not checking emails before writing? That it's just a time waste, um, and and it's something that you can get carried away with, as I just proved. I'm sitting there <laughs> moving everything around and, and checking everything and filing uh -huh. things away. It can get to, to the point where you know I all of a sudden I've waited. I've been sitting there for an hour and a half, and I haven't done anything that's not email yet. You know, and um, you know the the writing needs to come first. So I know that that's what I should be doing. I just can't seem to peel myself away from my email and to save it for later. Um, I feel like I have to know all the things that are going on. Especially with, like I said, the, the web series I'm working on, like the producer is in, in Barcelona, you know, so oh, nice. the time difference I have, like mm -hmm. he sends me stuff, I'm already asleep when he sends me stuff, so now I'm getting it and have to respond and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I think, I think that's the logic of don't check your email till later, like get your pages done first, at least some, even if you're gonna, like, let's say you have the goal of writing, okay, I'm gonna write 10 pages today. Okay, write your first five pages, then when you need a break, you check your email and stuff, then make sure you come back to it, you know, so, um, or save it towards later at the day, because I could potentially just, you know, check all my email at work, at my day job, you know, but I, I'm just obsessed. I don't know <laughs> what it is. Well, I think certain people have things about, like, they need the house in somewhat of, yeah. or there's like different things. That oh, I everyone think, has some kind of procrastination right. tool for sure, you know, like. Or need for order though. I think people need order sometimes, don't you think? Mm, maybe, I don't know. I, I know writers who, you know, they, they won't start writing until their desk is exactly the way it needs to be for the day. And that could take them a while. Cleaning stuff up, putting their coffee just so, you know, making sure the light's coming through a certain angle and stuff. Like, no, just write. If you're gonna write, start writing. So, I don't know, like, I know I need, I should change my email to later on, but uh, as of right now, it's my procrastination tool. I wake up, I check my email, okay. then I write, so. What's the formula for a bad story? I feel like there's many ways that a story could go bad. Um, not picking the right character to be the lead. Uh, I've definitely have read scripts where the lead character is much less interesting than like a secondary character in the script. It's like, why are you putting the focus here? Um, being completely plot driven to the point where we don't really have characters. If, if the whole story is just set piece after set piece, we don't care about what's going on or who the people are in the cool set pieces. It can be as cool as you want and still kind of fail because there's not enough of a story there, you know. Um, not uh, not having any kind of connection, I think, is probably the biggest the biggest bad thing that, that you'll see in a script is, you know, having the wrong character or not caring about the character. Um, I know that... Uh, 
anti-heroes are like a big thing nowadays, you know, like the Joker movie and, and Breaking Bad series of, you know. And so a lot of people think, you know, because it used to be that, oh, you have to like the character. Well, you don't necessarily have to like the character. No, If anybody liked the character in Joker, there's something wrong with them. Um, you know, well. <laughs> it's a great, it's a good movie, but it's like, if you can get on board with that character doing those awful things, there might be something wrong with you. But the thing is, you care about the character right, because, right. you know, they're, they're doing the bad things, but like you're seeing, in addition to the bad stuff, you're seeing like the human side of the character and something, sure. there's something that you can connect to, you know, like Taxi Driver even, which again, is a similar story to Joker and stuff. They're doing the bad stuff, but like they've got humanistic things about them, you know, that, that connects you. Um, where And like even superhero movies, you know, like, like those, those quotes from some famous directors that we won't throw under the bus, you know, of, you know, oh, superhero movies, you know, they're just like a roller coaster ride or whatever he said it was. And it's like, but, you know, if, if like superhero movies done well, you care about the character. Like that's the thing that, that like Marvel does really well, you know, in, in their movies is that you care about the superheroes. It's not just this guy in an iron suit who can blow stuff up with, you know, repulsor cannons or whatever it was called. Like you care about him and his interactions with other people around him and his, you know, how he wants to solve the problem. Um, if it was just a faceless person in a thing blowing stuff up, there's no nothing there to care about, you know. So that's probably the biggest bad thing people do is not giving us something to hold on to for the character. Do you think that the level of empathy has improved? Like, I'm, forgive me, I, I don't know much about the superhero genre, okay. so I'm hoping you can educate me on sure. it. Sure. So let's take Christopher Reeves as su Superman uh, in the 80s. As you should. All okay, right. all right, yeah. So... Um, <laughs> Do you think that version of Superman has evolved in terms of some of the humanistic qualities they give to him? Um, so like our, if we like were to compare that one with like some of the more recent Superman, um, I feel I love, okay, I love Christopher Reeve as Superman. I love Henry Cavill as Superman. They're, they're fantastic, but they're very different Superman. Um, the movie is obviously the tone is much darker in the new one than than the one in the eighties. Um, different time, also. yeah. Different um, things in the world, but there's still in each of them they still have human traits. Like they're this alien from outer space who has godlike powers, but they were raised as a person, you know. So they're not. Um, it, Superman is his secret identity. He's Clark Kent. If you think of the stuff because he was raised by mom and pa Kent to be a good person long before he even had the ability to knock over buildings and you know carry kryptonite planet or rocks mountains into the space you know like like happened because in uh superman returns you know brandon ralph's superman which is a continuation but okay um <laughs> i can go into too much of superman stuff but the point is they were people, they were humans, and they were brought up as good people from their parents before they had the ability to do godlike things. You know, so if they were just, if it was just somebody who was automatically born, already had the superpowers, and because there are, so in comic books, um, one thing that DC used to do was the, uh, the Elseworlds stories, and there's, my favorite one is uh, Superman Red Sun. They're going to have an animated version of come out later this year. I'm psyched for it. Um, where he, you know, crash landed in um, Soviet Russia. And he was basically raised as the Superman, the Ubermensch. Uh, you know, so he basically became their weapon, you know, during like the, the, the wars and stuff. And so 
uh, it's it's a whole nurture versus nature thing, you know, of of, of how he was raised because his his humanity is much lower in Red Sun than it ever was in the main continuity because he was raised by Mom Pa Kent over here, whereas over here he was, you know, raised by, you know, soldiers and, and the government and stuff like that to be a weapon. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that. But well, no, I think <laughs> I think you you've you've touched on it. So we're trying to. It, it sounds like because of the timing. Uh, so the 80s, yeah. the, the world was a definitely a different place. Sure. We had fears and there were things looming, but it seems like today uh, the intensity and then hence the story is darker. Yeah, so the, sto the tone is darker, but, it, but he's even if you look at him as a character, though, he still got raised by Mom and Pa Kent. So he still makes, you know, humanistic choices even when he's fighting against Zod. You know, one thing that everybody in for the new Superman movie with Henry Cavill people didn't like him in Man of Steel was that he ended up killing Zod at the end. Spoiler alert, if you didn't see it yet. <laughs> um, they're like, oh no, Superman would never kill. But the So it's a much darker thing, but it's he still made the choice to save human life, you know, because that's the way he was raised. You know, like his, his own dad, you know, made him not be Superman, basically, to save other people and stuff because it would oust him. Well, in this case, he's doing whatever it takes to save those people because he couldn't save people before. So, and then going back to the Christopher Reeve version, he's you know doing whatever it takes to save the people, like putting himself in harm's way with like the kryptonite and then having to go along the miss missiles. Granted, in in the old one, he got to fly around the Earth to save Lois in reverse time, <laughs> which our guy didn't get to do, but. Uh, He's still making all of his choices based on a human quality as opposed to a Superman quality. He's just a human who gets to do the Superman quality, which is why I say that Superman, it's not that Clark Kent is not his Superman secret identity. Superman is Clark Kent's secret identity. Do writers want to control their story world? And if so, what should they accept as out of their control? So there's a couple different schools of thought, I guess, that writers seem to have. Um, You've got writers who think that they are God and all these characters must bow to their whim because they're the ones selling the story. I'm kind of one of those writers. There are other writers who let the story tell itself where they, they you know, basically sit back and they're just like unraveling as the characters are coming up with the ideas. I find that the people in the second group who are just letting the story tell itself are also the ones who don't outline and may get lost in the trenches along the way. I'm a serial outliner. I will not start page one until I have a bulletproof story. I will do my outline and then do a rewrite on the outline and then do a rewrite on the outline and until like the story is as flawless as I can personally make it before I even start writing the script. And then I'm just adding dialogue basically at that point. Hmm. Um, so I have complete control over everything. Uh, things might change a little bit in the drafting, like if something doesn't work once I'm actually writing out the longer version of it, then I might make some tweaks. But for the most part, it sticks almost identical to my outline. We're at the point where I'm literally crossing off scenes on my outline. As soon as I finish typing it, move on to the next one. Um, whereas the people who don't outline and or let the characters live their own lives, they seem to meander more in the story. And as they're letting it go wherever it wants to go, well, that's a very good way to suddenly have like a 400-page script in front of you. And, right. you know, uh, in that case, I feel like those people should are more geared better towards novels, you know, where they can go off and on these long tangents that don't really connect to the story other than they're still using the characters. Um, so I think that's... So, yeah, the two different types of writers, and I find that for the most part, those who want to play God 
are the outliners and those who you know let the story live itself don't outline as much and have a tendency of either going off on tangents or just getting lost and not knowing what's coming next when you talked about how you almost thought it was a detriment to organize your email i'm wondering if that's actually a strength because you like that organization and so that that sort of lends itself to this outline it's as well. possible um you know because i do i don't do like the like the the, the Blake Schneider like beat outline like I do full scenes like I, I basically write out full paragraphs of everything um, everything except dialogue unless I have like a really cool dialogue that pops in my head then I'll write it down but for the most part I my outlines are you know they're not super long uh, I'd say maybe between 10 and 20 pages do you number sorry to I don't oh, but okay. I do like I do a scene heading like I know like the locations I want these things so I still have slugs uh, for each of my things, even in my outline. Um, so like, you know, like this scene takes place internal office and then external house and blah, blah. Um, but I don't sit there and number the scenes. Oh, um, I don't really feel, find that super important um, because one scene could be multiple scenes once you're in script form, you know, like if something's in, inside a house, you could have a scene in the living room and in the kitchen and in the dining room. And it's one one sequence, but then it's like broken down into like three or four scenes, you know. So I feel like numbering it isn't really going to help me much. Um, I'm still just going scene by scene or sequence by sequence as it may be anyway. Um, so yeah, I don't number. I don't really see a point. What's the most you've ever rewritten an outline, revised it? I have a script, James Hook. Uh, it's an origin story of Captain Hook from Peter Pan. Um, the outline went through about four rewrites. Um, then the script itself went through a ton of rewrites too, because even when I finished it, when I had the outline as solid as I thought I could get it, it was like an 18 page outline. The first draft of the script was 176 pages, way too long. Oh, so okay. a lot of stuff like got changed, you know, because it was way too long. And while trying to fix how to get rid of things, I uh, started seeing like, oh, well, these two scenes could be combined. They weren't over here because it seemed important that they were individual scenes, but now I need it shorter. And so it's easier to just combine these. A few story elements even, you know, changed along the way based on reader notes, where it was like in my head, it was like, oh, this is fabulous because you're spending so much time with the story. You might not always see everything that that is wrong with it. And so once I sent stuff out, Certain readers are like, oh, this comes across as kind of racist <laughs> or this comes as sexist or this doesn't work at all because of this thing that happened back here that like you might not see it as as clearly. So that's why I always get notes. I, I always do like I do all the outlining myself. I don't really show my outlines to anybody. Um, and then I do my first draft and then I do my own rewrite on it before I send out anybody. So nobody sees my story until it's at least a second draft of, of the script. Um, and then luckily I get very good notes to find things that didn't occur to me even while reading and rereading my own stuff. Um, I feel like we have a tendency of getting lost in our own work and falling too much in love with things and then not seeing that something doesn't work because you love it. It's such a cool scene. But sometimes those really cool scenes are the things that aren't work working in any capacity other than being cool. Um, and so if you can tweak things to make them better. You should. <laughs> Has anyone ever tried to talk you out of doing an outline? It's like, you know, Travis, you're spending oh, too much time absolutely. on Absolutely. Um, because again, I'm a serial outliner. I have I have outlined, as of right now, this 
today, I have outlines for 14 features and nine pilots that I haven't written yet. So um, and people are like, why am I spending all this time? And I've tried writing without an outline before. I have two scripts that I actually did write without outlining first, and it was hell to write them because I didn't know what was coming next. And that infuriated me so much that I'm like, I don't know how to get these characters out of this because I'm just trying to write off the cuff, you know? And um, one of those scripts hasn't, like nothing's happened with it. And because I'm like, it's it's cool and I like it, but I don't, I it's, it's also very short. Um, you know, like your features should be, you know, like the 90 to 120 page, in that range, you know, the 90 to 120. And I think this script is like 82 pages. And it's because, you know, I'm writing it out and like it, nothing, nothing, there wasn't a lot of material there of like just coming up with the, the full story in script form. Whereas if I, if I were to have like outlined it first, I would have seen ahead of time, oh, my outline's kind of short. Like what else is there that needs to be beefy, you know, <laughs> into the story. So, um, and then the other script that I wrote without an outline, was a page quarter finalist and has been optioned by two different producers over the years, you know? So um, I don't necessarily know that it's the process not working in a script or for the script not working, but for me, writing both of those scripts, no matter how good one of them may have been to, to get optioned and, and placed in contest, it was hell to write because I never knew what was happening and had to constantly be fixing things on the fly where, and it's much harder to, to fix a problem in a 90 page script than it is in like a five to 10 page outline. You know, if you're outlining something, it's only 10 pages and scenes need to be rearranged, you can just move scenes around and then see how it works and reread the whole thing again in like what, 15, 20 minutes of reading to see if it works. Whereas if you move something around in a feature, you could end up leaving things behind. And of course, then it's gonna affect things in the future. I would much rather rewrite you know, if I moved something at near the end, like let's say it was on page eight of my 10 page outline, I moved to page seven. I'd rather rewrite three pages, you know, as I need to, rather than in a script having to rewrite 30 pages of stuff that because it changes everything around it. Interesting. Okay, so it sounds like that works because it seems like a lot of people have an opposition to the uh, outline. So yeah. it sounds like if you couldn't do it, it would really yeah. hinder it, your- it, it hurts. Like I, yeah. I feel like, I know writing is, a lot of people say writing is supposed to be hard. Um, I don't necessarily believe that. Uh, I don't find that writing is hard if, as long as you find the time to actually write. I think it's more an issue of writing well is hard, um, coming up with the story that works. And again, I would much rather try to work that story out in 10 pages rather than trying to like fix something that was 90 pages, you know. Uh, I've seen, I saw, on Twitter, a writer recently, uh, he's a professional writer, works on, on a good TV show, um, who they were just trash talking the outlining process completely. And I'm like, well, that's fine for you. If, if you don't need to outline, then by all means. I have another friend who refuses to outline and her scripts are fantastic. But if you need to outline, and I do, definitely outline and don't listen to the people who are trash talking outline and do the process that works for you. I think you finished a first feature script, was it 2005? Yeah, 2005, that was the one that I had mentioned earlier that was like a personal thing that had gone through and I was kind of writing as a therapy sort of thing. I didn't know any of the rules of screenwriting, anything like that. Um, I was just kind of 
working out my own issues with it, you know, with what was going on in my life. So, sorry, this um, was at the alarm company. No, oh, no, no. Okay. Oh. 2005. No, 2005. Um, I was still in Michigan in 2005. Oh, okay. Um, massage therapy. No, that was before then even because I didn't go to massage school to 2010. So 2005. I gotta think where I was. Let's see. I, I would have been at that time working in a movie theater as a concessions clerk. Oh, nice. Um, as one of my jobs. I think I had four jobs simultaneously at that time. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I won't go into the details of what the personal issue was. Sure, that's fine. Um, although, which is weird, I still have people who have read a bunch of my scripts who still think that's my best script to date. And I'm like, that's impossible because I've written like so many scripts since then. But... Maybe That's it's interesting. Yeah, maybe it's because it's my most personal thing, you know, because I was, it was literally, I was taking the stuff that was happening to me and made the exact same things happen to the character and then just kind of the things I wish I would have done differently in the situation made the character do to get out of it kind of thing. Um, and So yeah. you were at the, you had four jobs, one of which was a concession stand right. at a movie theater. You're writing this script in the morning still? Um, that was kind of like whenever I could sort of thing because I, I like I said it was my very first script I didn't know anything about screenwriting I think I wrote that in MS Word uh, at the time oh, wow. so okay. like yeah I didn't know anything <laughs> I was just um, it, it was literally just my way of venting the stuff the, the stuff that was happening you know to me so um, it wasn't until after that that I like I said my second and third script was when I started doing other things like I, I wanted to do like a Superman thing or whatever and when you look at that script where, and where you were at during that time, what kind of writing misconceptions do you think you had versus now maybe things just feel more clear to you? Right. I didn't, I, I'd never even seen a screenplay yet by that point. Um, so I, I think I kind of wrote like the dialogue like I had seen in plays because I used to do like plays and musicals in high school, you know. Um, oh, nice. So I was kind of like going by that. So like I had instead of having... Character dialogue, character di I had character dialogue, character di <laughs> you know. So and then um, didn't really know what a slug line was. So everything was just written like a novel almost, but then had like it, so like yeah, it was basically written like a novel with um, oh, stage okay. play dialogue character setup. Um, I rewrote it once I learned about screenwriting, had read scripts because I started working as a production assistant in 2007, 2008, somewhere on there. Um, then as a production assistant uh, working in the, the sure, office, sure. my job was, one of, one of my jobs was collating scripts, you know, and, and sending them off people. So I started reading scripts a lot. I'm like, oh, that's how it's supposed to look. Gotcha, all right. So then went back to like that script and other scripts I'd read and then like changed the formatting up and stuff. How many screenplays have you sold? Sold? I haven't sold any. I've sold a couple of shorts. Oh. Uh, which is bizarre to me that there's a market for shorts, uh, but apparently there there is. There's even, um, I've heard of some actually big sales of shorts. In fact, one of the people who has one of my features optioned right now, they got their start working for a producer who was making short films for like Sony. And they were giving him like $100,000 budgets on each of these short films that oh, he wow. was making. Yeah. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what they did with, with a $100,000 short film at that point. But right. um, there's apparently a market for them. So I've sold two shorts. I've been hired to write a bunch of shorts. I've optioned. I currently have three features that are out on option. 
but total I've optioned seven features that I've had optioned, but then they didn't turn into sales. Um, I know one of them was because like they couldn't get the director that they wanted and they basically had in their mind it was that director or nobody sort of thing. So they one um, had optioned a thriller script of mine and then when they were looking for investments, they found an investor to, to give them like a very large sum of money, but only if it was for a slate of family-friendly features and mine did not fit the bill. So oh. it, went, it unfortunately went away. Um, but yeah, uh, I've got, of the three that are currently optioned, two of them are supposed to turn into sales within the next couple of months. So I'm hoping that that works out. Um, but yeah, so far I don't have any like full-on feature sales uh, as, of, as of today, so. Can you explain the optioning process? Sure, so an option is kind of like a, a, a rent to own sort of scenario. You see like those, you know, if you go on Craigslist looking for an apartment or something, they'll have like lease to own sort of things on like condos and stuff. So it's sort of that situation where they will pay you an obscenely small amount of money, uh, sometimes as little as a dollar to have the rights to the script for between six months and a year usually. Um, so that, that way you can't be shopping around to other people. So they know they're the only person who has the ability to make that movie and they're going around uh, trying to find either talent or investments or both um, so that then they can raise the money to make the movie. If they succeed, then they will buy the script from you so that then they can make it. If they don't succeed, their options are to either A, renew the option for a slightly less low amount of money. Um, <laughs> so if it was a dollar the first time around, it might be like, okay, now we gotta pay you like 500 bucks, you know, um, to, in order to get like an additional year. Um, or they can just be like, okay, we couldn't get it done. It's yours again, do it, what you want with it. So I've had scripts that after that first year, they couldn't do anything with it, so it's mine again. Um, one of the three that I've optioned right now, they've renewed the option like three times. So I don't, I don't know what, I know they've, they've had like different successes and failures with it along the way. So I'm hoping that they get more successes, <laughs> but until then I'm getting money every year just for them to keep being able to shop it around sort of thing. So um, yeah, that's, that's what an option is. They pay you a little amount to have the rights to shop it around and then which is slightly different from a shopping agreement um, because in a shopping agreement, unless it's an exclusive shopping agreement, like you could still potentially sell it to other people. Um, in a shopping, even an exclusive shopping agreement, they are getting the rights to like bring it around, but they can only bring it to like select people. They can't just like blanket the town with it with, under a shopping agreement. You know, they have to go to specific either investors or, or networks or depending on if it's a TV or feature. Um, like I currently have, I have one of my scripts out on a shopping agreement and then I have a shopping agreement that I own on a book that I wanted to adapt. Oh, nice. Um, so for the shopping agreement, there was like no money and I can only shop it around to specific people. Like I, I can't, sh I can't even tell people what the script is unless it's a producer who can get it made. Like, you know, so nobody, everyone knows that, oh, I wrote an adaption, but they're like, why, why can't you tell me what it is? Because my shopping agreement is that I can only shop it to people who can buy it. So nobody else can even know it exists um, other than knowing that I wrote it, you know, and they can't know what, what the script is to then go find the book or anything like that. So, um, and it's a similar thing on, on the script that I have out with a producer, it's on a shopping agreement, is that they can only talk about it to investors or other producers. Like they can't even talk, like try to 
um, get like a star or anything like that until it's either an option agreement or a sale. So, yeah. <laughs> and where does one submit for these optioning opportunities? Um, so there's lots of ways to do that. Um, there's a bunch of websites that have producers that are looking for specific stuff that you can pitch things to. Uh, like there's Inktip, uh, ISA, um, Screenwriting Staffing, uh, Mandy used to, but I think they kind of backed off on doing um, script stuff. I think it's mostly actors now for Mandy. Um, but they're like, you know, you pay a certain amount of money um, either like every month or every quarter uh, to basically get a newsletter from them of producers that are looking for specific things. Then you pitch your stuff to them and then if they dig it, then they'll option it or buy it. And if not, then they say thanks but no thanks. Um, you can pitch stuff in query letters, uh, query emails mostly now. Um, you get like an IMDb Pro account. You can gain access to uh, not all of them, but a large amount of, of industry people. You can get like their email or, or phone number, at least of where they work. You know, like if you want to go after like a rep, you know, like if you want to go like to, you know, like ATA or something, you know, you can get like the contact information for the company. Producers, a lot of times the producers will have like uh, contact for their production company and then they might even have uh, their own personal contact on there. Um, so you send them query letters and it's the same sort of thing. You know, if they like it, great. If not, oh well. Um, meeting people in person, doing networking. Um, you know, I've, one of my things that I, I optioned was through a Craigslist ad. <laughs> so there's lots of different avenues to, to find the producers, you know, to, to get your stuff out there. Yeah, I always say Craigslist can be like, the most amazing experience or horrific. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, a lot it's of people really trash talk Craigslist because there's so many scams on Craigslist. You know, there's a lot of things out there that, that but it, as long as there you're vetting. There can be some great stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I've, I have a producer I met on there who has now hired me to write like seven short films. Um, only two of them got produced that I know of. Um, but, you know, I would, it, and it, you know, because it's a short, there's not a whole lot of money, but it's like, that's stuff I can pump out in a day, basically, you know, to, to write like a little five page thing for him, you know, and make a little cash to, you know, pay for gas that week, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, that's nice. <laughs> um, and then like, it's also, as long as you're vetting the people, you know, making sure that they're not some like schmuck who's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna make a movie, you know? Uh, IMDb, whether you have the pro version or if you're just IMDbing someone, you can still find out like what they've done. Um, Google, of course, you can just Google people, um, look them up on, you know, like do like a search for them on like Variety or Deadline or anything like that. You know, you can find out if they have a track record of any kind or if there's somebody making their very first script or movie. And even if they are making their very first movie, that doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna scam you. It means they haven't done anything yet, you know, and, and those can be very good relationships too you know um you get in with somebody who it's their very first script that, that they're going to be producing they may not have the budget to do like some big sale and big production movie and stuff but you get in it's still a produced credit which is much better than not having a produced credit even if it's a terrible movie having that credit is is more useful to you than like just holding on to your babies and not you know selling your stuff or shopping your stuff around and I always find too, if the urgency of how fast somebody wants you to do something, if, if it's like, it's gotta be now or never, that's a red flag. Yeah, and sure. Um, I mean, I get things depends. move quickly, but right. if, if you're like, getting I, like a weird feeling and they're talking in circles, 
Sometimes that's a yeah. Red there's flag. there's definitely people who are doing the fake it till you make it sort of stuff. Um, when I was still living in Michigan, I'm again I'm not going to name any names, but when I was living in Michigan, there was a, a producer who was had that sort of thing where like, oh, we have to sign this now, 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 and it just wasn't a good deal, and they were going to like get way more out of it than I ever would have, you know, and they hadn't done anything. And they were like, I don't even know if some of the things they were saying are true or not, but like they were making like landish claims, you know, like the outlandish claims of who they had deals with, you know, of like distributor companies and stuff that they already have like first look deals with and stuff like that, which may have been true, you never know, uh, but it's one of those things that like, it didn't seem true. And when I looked them up, there was nothing to support their claims. <laughs> yeah, that's a big red Right, flag. doesn't yeah. necessarily mean it wasn't true, because yeah. like I was mentioning before, the cameras were rolling, you know, like there's a writer that I know who he makes like 300 grand per draft, but if you looked him up on NDB, he only has two produced credits, but he's written on like hundreds of things, you know. It's, or or uh, Carrie Fisher, you know, she, you know, if you looked her up on IMDb, you see all her acting stuff, you don't really see any writing stuff, but she was like one of the biggest, you know, ghost writers in town, you know, being paid to like do touch-ups and stuff, and she was getting paid very well to fix these scripts, you know, but you would never know it by looking up on IMDb, you know, so people could make claims that are totally true and you just can't find any information on that it, but true. if you can't find any information on it, not <laughs> right, but then, like you said, the, then the urgency, and yeah. then if it's if it's like confusing and also, it shouldn't be confusing. Yeah, I'll be looking at the deals and have a lawyer look at the deals too. Um, you can like attorneys. If it's an attorney that if you if you think you're going to have a long relationship with the attorney, you can probably convince them to do a percentage deal as opposed to paying them hourly. That's what I have with my attorney who does all my contracts. I've been with him since 2013 now. And he gets you know a percentage of anything I make from any of these deals, which for him could be a ton of money if I hit something big. You know, like if I were to sell my James Hook script to like Warner Brothers and get paid like a million bucks, his five percent of that million bucks is a crap load of money. Whereas if nothing happens, he doesn't get any money. So it's kind of like a risk on his part too, but one that he was willing to make because he saw potential of, of having deals in the future. And you know, I, I, at this point, I'm like, I, I, I want, I need one of those big deals so I can give him his five percent can be more money than you know paying his rent for a month or something. You know, so <laughs> sure. like the, the man deserves to live wealthy. You know, because he does such, he busts his butt. You know, to to get me good deals and make sure that I don't sign anything that is not signable. So um, having a, attorneys are indispensable. Even if you get, even if you have to pay one hourly, you know, if you're gonna make a have a deal that you're gonna make few thousand bucks on or something like that, it might be worth it to pay somebody like a hundred bucks an hour to look this over, make sure that you're not signing your soul away for pennies, you know. Right, a hundred bucks an hour, that's how inexpensive. Oh, um, I yeah, I, I've seen most, so if you get like an entertainment lawyer, they're, they could be as low as a hundred bucks an hour, they could be as high as 500 bucks an hour, it kind of depends, you kind of got to shop around just like you would, you know, with any rep. Um, or like I said, my, my guy, I know my guy, if I didn't have his 5%, his rate's 130 an hour, which is still not bad when, you know, most of these things or whatever. But, but the thing is, though, you're, you can't really pressure him into doing everything one hour, you know. Like, <laughs> you send him, like, an 11-page uh, contract, you know, you're not going to get, even if it's 100 bucks an hour, you're, you're, you're going to be paying at least 300 bucks. I guarantee it, you know. So um, it's one of those things you just kind of got to wait. You know, if it's going to be, like, a little dollar option thing, maybe not, but... Um, yeah, 
lawyers are indispensable because they're the ones who are going to find all the stuff that is a big red flag that you would never know because all this legalese it talks in circles. I, I understand some of it now that I've had enough contracts over the years. Um, so I know things to look out for, but there's still stuff that my attorney and their attorney will, will be having red lines back and forth that I have no idea why this is a bad thing and why, why I shouldn't sign. But if my attorney is saying no, then no. And it's harder now because, you know, before, it was either late 2013 or, late, or early 2014, they changed the laws a little bit um, with what attorneys can even do for you because it used to be my lawyer was able to talk directly to the producers, you know, on these deals and they could just discuss the contract them, between themselves. I could just sit back, let them do their job. Um, but then the law changed, like I said, was, I can't remember if it was end of 2013 or beginning of 2014, where now he can't. Oh. Uh, he, he can be the, he can do all the redlining on the contract, but he's not even allowed to have take a phone call with the producer that I'm, that I'm working on because it'll count as him doing an agent's work oh, at that point. Okay. It's um, so all like I, I have a deal right now that the, the producer isn't really understanding that. He's getting very angry that, you know, my, my attorney won't talk to him, but it's like, it's not that he won't talk to you. He can't legally talk to you, you know, and, you know, it's one of those things that he could, he could talk to you and like risk everything by doing this. Sure, sure. Just like, you know, if you're talking on the cell phone while you're driving, you're making a risk that you're going to get arrested for that, you know, or pay a bill. Uh, uh, you know, it's one of those things you kind of got to weigh your risks and options and my attorney will not, you know, cross that boundary just in case kind of thing. Travis, I'm wondering if we can talk about the levels of dimension in a character. So if we could talk about what a three-dimensional character looks like, and then one that's two-dimensional, and finally, just a one-dimensional character. So how does one look flat versus a fully fleshed out, maybe three-dimensional character? Sure, I'm not sure how to do 2D. That's an interesting <laughs> okay, concept. Can, we, 1D and 3D <laughs> make sense to me. 2D, I'm I like, created that. Second. Yeah, okay, let me. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I guess, one, I guess 2D is technically a piece of paper. So okay. there's that. Um, so, one, uh, so a single-dimensional character is somebody who's just kind of there to facilitate the plot. Um, like they're there to basically just be a moving piece along the way um, where they're just an, an anchor for the story. Um, they're usually somebody who the story is happening to and they're not really making any choices. They're just kind of being pushed along by all the stuff that's occurring around them. Um, Three-dimensional character is more like a real human being who makes choices and some of those choices are good and some of those choices are bad. Um, there's somebody who actually at least makes decisions about the things, you know, they're not somebody who is being pushed along by like if the killer's running after them, they're not just going upstairs because that's where the story needs to take place. You know, there's somebody who might fight back against the, the, the bad guy, you know, um, or somebody who may go and cower in a closet somewhere, you know, it's very character specific, um, you know, somebody who may have a different experience, you know, like uh, have like the exact same story. If you have the main character be a hairdresser, they're gonna make way different decisions than a character who's an FBI agent. And that would be a three-dimensional character because all the choices of, of what they're doing has to do with their experiences. 1D character would be somebody who we don't, if it was an FBI agent or a beauty salon person, it doesn't matter because they're just going where the story's going, you know? Sure. So, um, 
Yeah, that's my best. I, again, 2D is, is a piece of paper. I don't know what to do with that for a character. Or maybe they're an FBI agent that has a cover as a hair salon, <laughs> and then these women can find all these, these things, and they're like, oh, and then they get these tips. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Are there different tests, though, that you, when you look at the characters that you're writing, and you say, you know what, this is too, this is too one-dimensional right here? Um, well, I, I try to come up with, so I, I'm, I'm personally more of a plot writer than a character writer, but even in having a plot, you need the characters to make sense. I'm not going to make, I still need to find the character to have in this plot. So like if I want an alien invasion story, I am not going to write a character that could be anything just because all I care about is the cool explosions of having an alien invasion happen. And so I have, I need to find, I need to find characters that are going to make cool decisions that are cinematic based on what's happening to them. So if I want something that's going to be like high impact action where like the good guy is fighting back, I might have a soldier as, as the lead character and they're going to make way different decisions than like just the general public is, you know, so they're, they're going to be helping other people get out of the situation. They're going to be fighting back against the aliens. They're going to be plotting and scheming and, and coming up with whatever they can to survive, help others survive and defeat the bad guy. Whereas if I want something that's just a terror-driven thing where we are like on the edge of our seats of, oh my God, when is this person going to die? I might have just a regular Joe Schmo who has no experience. They're just looking out for themselves, maybe not helping other people unless they can't help it. Um, you know, who's gonna be cowering in their car and they are probably gonna die at any point. <laughs> where So at that point it's like, oh, when is this person gonna die? Versus the soldier, oh, when is he gonna beat the aliens, you know? And because it's the same setup, because it's a different character, it's the same, it's a completely different story now. Um, so it's kind of one of those things of like, okay, if I, I want this story to be about a specific, to go a certain route, I need to find the character that helps that route along. It isn't just some random person, you know, based on what the experiences are. And even then my story, because again, I'm outlining, right? So in the outline, when I'm coming up with, okay, what character would best facilitate it? Now I have to think, well, what decisions is this character going to make and how does that change the rest of the plot that I originally had in mind? And so going from my initial like one sentence thing that I write in my idea book may be a completely different animal now that I have the character for it. Um, yes. <laughs> With your script, if we go back to 2005, which you said was loosely based on you or it was yeah, really your script? Right, it was, it was a loosely based thing. Like okay. thing, it, the character was going through the same stuff that I was going through. Um, sometimes a little more dramatic than what my own stuff was, uh, and a vastly different outcome from what my personal experience was. Uh, but yeah, like that script was, was loosely based on the, the situation I was in. Do you feel that that character was three-dimensional, or do you feel like the writing I feel like then... that character was me, uh, in a sense, and, and me kind of living out my own fantasy of how I, of like what I feel like I should have done. The first two-thirds of that script was the character was as weak as I was in this situation um, where it was he was letting the stuff happen to him and not really fighting back and I felt like the stuff I was writing was basically like how I wanted to get out of that situation but I in real life I was just too like weak to do it like I knew what needed to be done I just couldn't convince myself to actually do it 
So I had the character who had the same situation as me and he was just as weak as I was until he finally found the strength to push forward and do what needed to be done. Uh, and even then, like once I wrote that point, that was when I was able to like end that scenario in my own life. Um, it was, it was a, I was in an abusive relationship is, is what that was. And, and so, you know, the, it was almost like a reverse Lifetime movie. You know, there's a lot of Lifetime movies where like you got the, the woman who's being beaten by the man and stuff, you know, and, and following her trail. So it was the guy being beaten by his wife at the oh. time, you know. And so I, you know, in real life, like I couldn't get myself to get out of that situation. Oh. I don't want to cry. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, I feel oh. bad now. I no, no worries. Okay. Um, so like I knew that I needed to get out of the situation, but I just couldn't get myself to do it, you know, because I... I was like low self-esteem at the time, so I felt like I couldn't do any better than, than that. And uh, so I was in the writing, he, you know, rose above it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ugh. Okay. So he, in the story, you know, like found the power that I couldn't basically and, and rose above it and then had like a much, much different ending, obviously, than, than just leaving leaving it because uh, you know, I, I wanted it to be like kind of cinematic too. So there was like some thrillery stuff thrown into the third act of that um, that obviously never happened in real life. But it was the same situation, the same sort of feelings. And it was kind of like, so that's why it was like therapy for me. Yeah. To yeah. get out of it. Okay. What is connectivity in a screenplay and why is that important? I feel like that to me, at least, the connectivity seems like it would go with uh, like plot holes, sort of thing, like filling it. Because uh, a lot of new writers, when they're writing stuff, aren't really looking at it as a whole. They're just doing like scene by scene by scene by scene by scene, and not realizing when there are things that happen here that you never set up over here. So it kind of feels like it's out of left field. You know, like the 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 big thing is having like you know twist endings and stuff like that. Well, twist ending doesn't work if you didn't set it up in in advance. Uh, it'll just feel completely out of left field, you know, so it to me at least that that's my understanding of from the question it, You know with that is is being able to connect the different aspects of the thing to make it make sense Because if you don't have the setup then the payoff doesn't work, you know Or if you do a setup and then there's no payoff well now you just Ruined the perfectly good setup and people are gonna be mad. Why didn't this come to fruition, you know, right? Okay, so so just like turn of events different things it can't just happen where there was nothing to right. set something off. Yeah, like I said, the, the twist doesn't work if there's no, no setup. If Otherwise, it's just a twist for the sake of having a twist, and that never works well. Right. Do you think that it's best, though, that the audience didn't see the twist coming? I mean, in terms of, the audience likes to know something, sure. but do okay, they totally? So even, even in a movie where there's like a twist that you never saw coming, there's usually something in it that if you were to go rewind it and watch it again, like then you'll see, oh, that was already set up in advance sort of thing, you know? Um, I feel like in a movie, if it's going forward and then the ending like is completely bizarro and had nothing to do with anything, like I feel like I'm cheated. That feels like a huge like deus ex machina sort of situation to me of like, there's no way this would have happened. Why did this suddenly happen, you know? But if there's things that set up, I just read, so I, I, I read through a lot of the like the blacklist scripts and I just read one that was on 2019 blacklist where the ending is kind of a twist ending but it was something that, that if you paid attention got set up a few pages at least prior. So it wasn't like way at the beginning it got set up but um, and like the twist ending in it, in it was that she, it, it's about a mountain climber who she's climbing up this mountain and it's like a haunted mountain. And, oh, right. and at the very end of it 
I don't know if this is gonna be a spoiler because I don't, as far as I know, it hasn't got picked up anywhere yet. So in five years from now, it may be picked up and I apologize for spoiling it five years in advance. Um, <laughs> but she gets at the end, like as she's climbing, um, when she gets to the very tip top, it turns out that now she's like a part of like a heavenly sort of situation. And then it suddenly jumps to where find her dead body like in the cave below. Um, and it's kind of twisty because it's like also, okay, she got the clock. What? She was dead, but it sets it up because there's a couple different times when she falls while climbing the mountain and like miraculously got saved, especially the very last one when she falls and one of the ghosts catch her. Is like at that point, okay, she's still plummeting when, when he caught her, but it makes it look like, or um, what's the one with Mandy Moore in the sharks? Uh, oh, 47, uh, 47 meters. Yeah. Let's try that again. Right, right. So for 47 meters with Mandy Moore, you know, like the, and I apologize again for spoiling stuff, but at the end of the thing, you find out that like a lot of the, the rest of the, a lot of the end of the script like never happened. Like she gets saved and we find out that oh, she's actually been imagining this whole thing the whole time about her having this final encounter with the shark, getting out of the cage, getting rescued, coming up on the ship. And they do it a really cool way. You know, she had gotten like injured along the way. And when she's on the ship, her blood is like floating in the air above her and she's like watching it. And then it cuts down to her still being in the shark tank. And, but they set that up because of the whole thing of, of, um, like hypoxia and and in running out of oxygen stuff, so, you know, it starts to like mess your head. You start hallucinating and stuff. That was one of the first things they talked about in the movie. You know, it was like the dangers of being at such a low depth. You know, of if you can't come, if you don't come back up in time. And they even talked about it again while she was in the tank with her sister before her sister like got killed and stuff by the shark. That they were discussing it again. So it's like it's something that got set up twice before we saw the ending. So some people. You know, watching it, so I was like, "What? She imagined that? That's a horrible end." But no, it wasn't because they set it up twice before then, so we kind of saw that it was a possibility of her hallucinating. So then that sets up, "Oh, if she could hallucinate, then yes, that makes sense for hallucinating this ending." It kind of infuriates the audience though because, "Oh, I wanted her to survive, and she's not gonna," <laughs> but it sets it up so the twist works. Did you see Strange but True with Margaret Qualley? I don't believe so. It was an adaptation. I think it came out last year. And that one was a shocker. And then when you write, when you go back, there were a few clues. Yeah. That I don't want to give what I mean, it's such a great film. Um, it's a, like a dark. Well, you know, the one that everyone keeps go, always goes to with the twist ending, you know, is uh, Sixth Sense. Oh, okay. Like if you paid attention, you could find that you could figure out, you know, or if you, even if you didn't figure out, if you rewind it and watch it a second time, you'll find all the different clues along the way that. Bruce Willis is a ghost the whole time, you know. Um, there's, it's a lot of like little minor things that you, I didn't catch it the first time I watched it. Most people didn't. And people were like, what? That doesn't make sense. I rewatched it the second time. I'm like, oh, here's where it's set up for it. And here's where it's set up for it. And here's, the, here's two scenes in a row where it sets up for it. So, <laughs> right. you know, it, it worked because there were setups. Like you don't, you didn't realize it along the way, but then it's one of those things that like, you look back on it and find out the movie is much better than you actually realized it while you were watching it sort of thing. Yeah. You like M. Night Shyamalan? Oh, yeah. I, I know a lot of people will give him shit for I some of his why, movies. Yeah, I don't know why. But. Um, the only movie of his I didn't like was The Happening, uh, with the one where the trees are killing everyone. Okay. That was the only one that I thought was like too out there. Um, but like... I, I'm a huge fan of his stuff. I, I really want to see The Servant on 
Apple TV Plus. I haven't gotten a chance to watch it yet. There's, I actually want to see most of the shows on Apple TV Plus. I'm just like itching to, <laughs> to, to watch those. Um, Put it on the vision board. Yeah, basically another, what, seven, eight bucks a month or whatever it is. <laughs> no, but I, no, you're not paying vision, for This vision board idea is getting expensive <laughs> now, all right? But you don't have the coffee expense. <laughs> right, yeah. And that, that adds up, so. So your book, 365, A Year of Screenwriting Tips, yes. which is beautifully displayed uh, behind us, and then you also have a copy there. Now, I think you said, uh, first off to begin, the purpose of the book is not to try and make you better at a specific thing. Right. Um, so a lot of screenwriting books will focus on one specific thing. You know, um, there's a book, uh, oh, what is it, Shadow something. It's a very good book. I can't remember what it's called, but plug it for him. Um, but it's it's all about characters and how to write characters, specifically villainous characters. Oh. Um, then you have, you know, like Blake Snyder's, you know, Save the Cat that everyone loves and stuff that tells you like how to outline a story basically and like how story beats work. And then you have, you know, books that are like either like specifically about Television writing. Stephen L. Sears, uh, prolific TV writer. He he uh, was the executive producer on Xena: Warrior Princess. And he's got a, script, a book that's just about TV writing, and and it covers you know like how to come up with ideas, and also some of the business stuff, which is why it's a very good book because it goes over the business stuff that a lot of other things skip and pass on. And so my book has like it's not about a specific thing. It's kind of like a general overall arc of writing. Um, the process of writing, the business of writing, what you can expect. Um, you know, I've got it broken down into different parts. And if I can get to the table of contents. So we've got like the before you start, which is, you know, talking about um, some of the misconceptions about writing in general. Uh, it talks about, you know, like, like I said before, about like the, the statistic that there are NFL football players and there are screenwriters. Uh, then there's like a bit on writing and there's prep work, uh, which is you know about outlining and, and treatments and, and how to come up with ideas. Uh, there's a section on format. So instead of needing a whole book about format, you've got one section here that's what uh, 40-ish pages on formatting. And each of the each of the things are only like a page or less each, you know. So um, it's all very quick reading. Um, there's a thing specifically on story, thing on character's dialogue, thing on rewriting, and then after what to do after the script is done and. There's, so it covers a little bit on everything, but it's not, it's not made to make you a better writer. It's more of to know about the writing process, what to do before and after, um, how to get your head in game and come up with ideas and stuff like that. It also has ideas on how to relax. Um, you know, I've got in there, one of the tips is about having a positivity calendar because it is very difficult to stay positive in this industry when you're getting rejections coming at you from everywhere. Um, so my positivity calendar is, is you got your calendar, instead of checking the calendar off with X's like they do in the movies, uh, I mark off the days on the calendar by writing every positive thing that happened to me that day. Well, that's great. So then later on, if I have like a really bad rejection or like really wanting this meeting and then it fell through, instead of being like being glum, I can look back at the calendar and be, oh, well, okay, yes, today didn't, wasn't so great, but look at all this amazing stuff that happened to me earlier on in the week and stuff, you know. That's or, and idea. yeah, it's a good way to keep, keep track of your progress. Like I also put in there like my page, what page I ended on on my 
different on my scripts each day. So then I can also keep track of my progress. I'm like, that's a positive thing. I, I got, yesterday I was on page 23, today I'm on page 34, awesome. I wrote, you know, a bunch of pages today. You know, and another tip in there is uh, relax. Go, if you're in Los Angeles, go to Salt and Straw. Get yourself some ice cream because it's fantastic ice cream. I know. Where's um, that, by the way? They have a bunch of locations. Oh, okay. um, they're originally from Oregon, I believe. Um, and then they've, they've got, uh, in Portland, they've got like a couple locations. They're not here in LA. They've got, I think, five locations in LA. There's one on 3rd Street in downtown. Uh, only reason I don't suggest going there is there's nowhere to park. In the, yeah. in, in the arts district. Um, there's one on Larchmont. There's one on Ventura, uh, like up in, in, in NoHo area. Um, there's one in uh, Venice. Um, there's one on Santa Monica Boulevard. <laughs> uh, there's one uh, in um, downtown Disney now. Oh, nice. Just opened uh, last year, I think. And then they've got a couple locations. I think they've either one location or two locations down in San Diego. So like all along the West Coast, they've got Salt and Straw. And oh, San Francisco, they just opened a San Francisco one too. So basically everywhere <laughs> along okay. the West Coast. Uh, and it's fantastic ice cream. And they, they change their flavors every month. They, they have some really good ones. They have some really bizarre ones too. Like uh, in April, last April for the spring, I think they had one that had uh, chocolate covered bugs in it. Oh, wow. So it was a grass flavored ice okay. cream with chocolate covered bugs. Alrighty. Um, for Halloween, <laughs> they had a, a blood pudding one that... The main base actually was chicken blood and livers. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, but then they also have, you know, like they they have regular flavors oh, too. Okay, do they have they like have, chunky monkeys? They have like <laughs> chocolate stuff, you know, and they have, um, like right now for February, they have, you know, a chocolatier series where all the flavors are based on like a local chocolatier company. Like if you're in LA, it's like all LA chocolate companies, um, you know, like, like the Comparte and, um, 31 Blackbirds and stuff like that, where they make the ice cream based on those. San Diego, Portland, they all have like their own local chocolatiers that they change their their recipes for. So uh, one year they had, um, I don't know why I'm talking about ice cream. So screenwriting, I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm very hungry, by I'm the sorry. way. I'm um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I want to actually go into some of the, the tips that you have. Sure. One of the first ones is um, regarding cliches. So I'm curious, what is one of the most cliche pieces of screenwriting advice that is actually absolutely true. Uh -huh. And then vice versa, most cliche piece of screenwriting advice that is false. Okay, so a cliche that is like absolutely writing true. writing is rewriting or something. Sure. Or, you know, something. Um, let me think about that for a second. Uh, one that's true and one that's false. So a true cliche in my opinion, I would say, is that you should write every day. Um, because if you get in the habit of not writing, then you're gonna stay in the habit of not writing. If you get in the habit of writing, you're gonna keep writing. Um, if you're in this to be, like if you wanna take time off, everyone needs time off. You're, you're gonna burn yourself out if you if you write like and never have fun, you know? So you still gotta, you still gotta take time. But if you're not writing every day, then you're not getting in the habit of writing and then it's way too easy to just sit back and go watch shows instead of writing your own show. And then you don't get stuff done. And that's why it takes people, they've been writing the same script for the last two years, you know, and they're not even close to done with it yet. You know, like, oh yeah, I got the first act done. Really? In, a, in two years? Um, 
or they've written just one script and then never anymore and they're just shopping around the same script for five years and have, don't have any additional stuff. So butt in the seat is a must uh, that I think is absolutely true. Uh, one that I think is absolutely not true is um, that you have to have everything format perfect. There are certain things that you do need to have. It needs to look like a screenplay. So if you turn something that looks like a novel, it's gonna get thrown in the trash. Um, there are certain components that it needs to have. It needs to have dialogue. It needs to have, unless it's a silent film, um, it also needs to have description and it should look about the same. But nobody is gonna fault you if like you have one too many lines in your description. Uh, so like the thing, even in my book I mentioned that you should try to have four lines or less in your description paragraphs. Nobody's gonna fault you if it's five lines. They're not gonna be like, oh, this one paragraph is five. Nope, nope, can't do it. Um, typos are one that I would say you absolutely should fix if you can, but there are plenty of professional writers who have the occasional typo, so they're not gonna throw it in the garbage the first typo they see, unless the typo's on page one. Then they're probably gonna throw it in the garbage immediately. Um, so yeah, I would say that the formatting can, oh, and then like bolding or not bolding your slug lines is another formatting thing where people are like, oh, if you, like nobody, like you can't bold your, your slug lines. Yes, you can. You can't underline your slug lines. Yes, you can. <laughs> uh, they're not gonna throw it away. As long as the story's good, they're gonna forgive you like minor faux pas or alterations of the formatting. Um, so they're not gonna be like, oh, this is not written correctly. They will do it if it looks nothing like a script, though. I will say that. <laughs> if it doesn't even look like a screenplay, then they'll throw it away. Um, but even even things like page length is, is there's some give, you know, if it, it, you know, I've heard that if it's not 90 pages, 120 pages, if it's less than 90 or more than 120, it'll get thrown away. That's not true. If it's 122, 123 pages, I won't have fun reading it, but I'm not gonna throw it in the garbage, you know, if a producer, if I think it's a good enough story, you know, for a producer, because I do reading on the side too, as one of my side gigs and stuff for like producers and for contests and stuff, you know. Um, yeah. Okay. Again, so I feel like I talked way too long. No, no, answer. I like that. Okay, so um, those are the two. One that's a cliche that that is true, and one that's a cliche uh, that maybe there's some give on. Mm -hmm. um, tip number one: experts are liars. Yeah. So a lot of screenwriting books, I feel, are there to sell screenwriting books, and. One of the first things I say in my book is that I'm not a guru or an expert of any kind. You know, I here's what I've done, here's what I haven't done. I'm not gonna lie to you and say, I know the answers. A lot of screenwriting gurus will tell you like, this is the way it needs to be done. That's why I'm writing this book so that you do it right. There are so many ways in this industry to, to be a writer. Like I said, some people outline, some people don't. Um, some people ha follow different methodologies of storytelling. You know, like some people may follow Blake Snyder's beat sheet. Some people may follow the, the, the hero's journey. They're very similar things, but they're different. And I even, in the book, I talk about like five or six different methods of storytelling even. I'm not saying one is better than the other and that you need to write this way. I'm saying here are the options for you, you know. Well, what are they? Uh, let me, let's, let's find, <laughs> now, if you can pause the tape for oh, a second sure, so sure, I can yeah. find it. Uh, let's see, 134 is where stories start, so it's probably around there. Again, I don't know my, I don't have everything memorized. Right, let's see, five types of conflict. Aristotle, okay, so we got Aristotle's version. Uh, we got the Blake, 
Blake uh, Snyder's Save the Cat Beat Sheet, Hero's Journey, Sid Field's Paradigm, uh, the five-act structure, the four-act structure, because usually you've got the three-act structure and stuff. Well, these guys are telling you there are more structures you can do than just three-act. we got the mini-movie method. Uh, we got Max Landis's Rule of Three. Uh, you know, so it's like there's, that's what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different versions of storytelling that I talk about here. There might even be more later on if I messed up on how I numbered my tips in here <laughs> oh, that's excellent but uh yeah so which do you prefer when you're writing i honestly don't use any of them i just write the story like I said, I'm, I'm outlining like crazy and then revising my outline until i get a bulletproof story so i'm not really going with you know any of these specific things like we got the blake snyder you got you know your opening image set up stated uh, state your theme then the catalyst the debate the break in act two I don't really think about any of that when I'm doing act one. I'm just starting with, okay, how does this, how does the world open so that we can know who the character we're gonna follow is and what's gonna happen in this story? I feel like you, the one thing is that by the end of act one, we should know what the story's gonna be about, but I'm not gonna break it down because I, I believe in Blake Snare's book, he actually gives you even specific page, page numbers of where the thing should happen by. I'm like, that's way by the numbers. like. There, I, it takes away too much creativity. I feel if you're gonna be like that, the, the the exception I would say is in television writing because you've got to go to the commercials. Um, if you're on net, if you're on like a, a broadcasting like NBC or something, but versus streaming, um, that you need to have like each act end with some kind of cliffhanger uh, to bring the audience back after the commercial break. Um, and you need to do, we need, if you're gonna, I would say your, your A story and B story, you should have them in certain spots so that it, it flows throughout the thing. But for feature writing, I don't know that any of these are necessarily need to be in any specific order or by a certain page count, as long as they're there. Um, because you know, you, you look at Forrest Gump, it, you can, it, if you look at Forrest Gump, it's act one is like five minutes tops. <laughs> and then the rest of it's an act two for the most part, you know, and then act three is like the end. You know, whereas, whereas some methods tell you that like act one should be ending on like between page 25 and 30. Well, Forrest Gump quelled that, didn't it? You know, it's act one is up until he's an adult and then suddenly he's going off to war and like now we're already in act two and we're only like five to 10 minutes into the movie tops, you know. Right, but do you think for a newbie screenwriter, because you know, I'm thinking about like a chef and I remember I saw the professional a professional chef Another in the kitchen. Another job I've had, by the way. Oh, you have, oh, okay. I was okay. a sous chef once. Oh, nice, okay. <laughs> so you're used to conflict and being under stress. And I I've done everything. <laughs> so, so, and I asked the chef, do you measure? And the, the, the chef scoffed and said, no, that's for amateurs yeah. or whatever. And, and, but do you think that after a while, then you don't need to say, sure. by this page, there's gonna be this plot point you know, well, okay, so I feel like it's a little bit different though because I will absolutely agree with, with the chef thing because if I'm cooking something for the very first time as a recipe I've never used before, I'm gonna follow the recipe to the thing. But then once I know what it's supposed to look like and taste like, I can just start eyeballing it. You know, my mom has not used her measuring cup since probably the day I was born. <laughs> um, she just kind of like, okay, the recipe calls for a cup. Eh, that's about a cup, there we go, boom. You know. Um, you just kind of go by taste at that point, but um, and I would say doing by taste is is a good phrase to use for for the script and stuff. Is that these are all the guidelines, but it you know if you if you change your mac and cheese recipe a little bit, it's still a damn good mac and cheese, just not yeah. the same mac and cheese that this person made. 
Right. And so it's, you know, you're do it, you know, so it's the same thing with the scripts. Like these are your outlines of of how of the general story, right? So like the hero's journey, you know, you've got like your epic adventure here. Here's how it would look, but if you tweak some stuff along the way, tell a different story, it's not better or worse than what he's got. It's a different story, you know. Um, and it might be better if, if the ingredients you use fit the bill, you know. So um, these are good things to know as the guidelines, which is why I mentioned so many of them. So you can see, okay, these are what all the experts are saying. Take those and work with them how you want. Maybe take a little bit from this pile, a little bit from this pile, and tell the stories you want to tell in the best way you can figure out how to tell it. Tip number two. Okay, so tip number two. <laughs> there are only two screenwriting rules? Yeah. The, so I've got in my book here, I've even got them labeled for you. Rule number one is write a script that looks like a script, which That's I already talked rule. about, right? So if it, if it looks like a novel, it's not a script. It's going in the garbage. So if it looks like a script, you've or at least got past the first gate because there are a lot of scripts that come in that don't look like scripts. They're getting, like, I seriously, when I was uh, doing reading for a producer, I was sent the script to read that was 312 pages. <laughs> I'm not reading a 312 page script. It's not happening. So it doesn't look like a script right off the bat. So as long as it looks like a script, like I say, even the formatting, you can have a little tweaks here and there as long as it still looks like a script. And number two, write a script that feels like a movie, preferably a good movie. If you're obviously writing TV, then it would be right script that feels like a TV episode. If you are writing this big lengthy thing that feels like it should be a novel, you're getting in the characters' minds, all this other stuff, it's not a movie anymore. If you're telling me something that's just us sitting here having a conversation, this is great for a YouTube video. I'm not gonna watch a whole movie of me sitting here talking to you. Like even documentaries, they're cutting away to other stuff, right? Like other things are happening than just two people talking to each other. So it needs to look like a movie, uh, look like a script, and it needs to feel like a movie. Bonus points if it's a good movie. Like that. Okay, so don't write War and Peace. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And submit it. For, <laughs> yeah, don't, don't try to have a, an eight-part series. Yeah, it, because if it's, if it's a short... So... I've been asked a question from people on like Facebook and stuff where they've DM'd me and asking like, okay, how do you, how can I tell if it's a short or a feature or a show? Okay, if you can tell the entire story in like 20 minutes or less and be done with it, it's a short. If you can tell the thing, if it's gonna take at least half an hour to tell it and you can have it done in like three hours and then that's it, like we never have to see these characters again, like it's a feature. If it's too short, flesh it out to feature. To, to get there, if it's, you know, like a little bit, if it's three hours, try to pull it back a little bit to make it a feature. But it's a feature if, if you can tell it, you know, in a couple of hours. But if it's something that could go on and on forever, it's probably a television series. Um, you know, if, if I made a Flash, like if I'm going to comic books, if I have the Flash TV series versus the, the Flash movie that may or may not ever even happen now with, with, with uh, Ezra Miller, um, those are going to be two very different flash stories because in one they're going to be telling the story between like an hour and a half, two and a half hours. The other one we're already what six seasons in and it's still going. We can have episodic and, and keep going. You know, um, they're going to be two very different stories to tell, sort of thing. So yes, that is. So that's that's the thing with the with it being cinematic is figuring out where does it fall in line. Is it a short? Is it a feature? Is it a TV show? Is it a 
book? Is it like a is it a comic book series? Is it a poem? You know, they Graphic all poem. these different things have different uh, sort of world and guidelines to them because if your story, but it needs it needs to go around the story you want to tell. So if the story you want to tell, if you could keep telling it over and over and over with different things, it's probably a TV series. If you're going to tell me this succinct little story that's cool and has like a couple different A plot, B plot, C plot, but it's only going to take you two hours to tell it, it's a feature. So keeping those in mind is, is how to figure out, you know, where your story lies among all of the medium that there is to create in. It might be a painting. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. You cannot trash talk the field you want to be a part of. Yes. Uh, so... This is one of the things, so a big reason I wrote this book to begin with was because of seeing people on the Facebook screenwriting groups asking the same questions over and over. This particular tip was seeing of huge faux pas that a lot of writers do where they're like, I'm writing this because there's nothing good in Hollywood. There are no good movies anymore. Well, why, are, if you're announcing that to the world, like why do you want to make movies if there's nothing good? Like what is the point of you going into a field where you think everything out there is garbage, why do you want to be a part of this? And why are you going to tell people that you think it's all garbage to begin with, you know? It's, so yeah, don't, don't trash, if this is the field you want to be in, don't start trash talking other people's work, don't trash talk other people who are working in the industry that you may or may not ever work with. Because this is a small town and that gets around. So save it for politics. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What is screenwriter homework and can you give me an assignment? Screenwriter homework can give you an assignment. All right, so the homework is doing the work first off, uh, but let's go with a specific assignment for you. Um, you wanna come up with an idea for a story, um, but you don't really know where to start. So one good place to start that I have in my book is the comp game. So for those who don't know what a comp is, a comp is this meets that. You know, so like a movie is Harry meets Sally meets Air Bud. What is that movie going to be? <laughs> so there's your assignment. You come up with, and this is a, um, since my fiance's sitting here, I'll tell this story. Okay. Uh, so a script I have out uh, that I'm passing around is called Run. Uh, it is a story about a detective who is being forced to run nonstop uh, in order to save her daughter from a killer. Um, my script's placed in several contests at this point. Um, I, I've been in semi-finalist uh, in, in like three of them and quarter-finalist in another two. Um, and it's a script that like a lot of people seem to like. Um, where did that story come from? Okay, so we were playing the comp game one day, driving to a networking event, stuck in traffic. So we were playing the comp game, coming up with, I was coming up with bizarre things. She was coming up with bizarre things. I think at one point I told her she needed to do, I might have actually said Air Bud meets something else. So she gave me, okay, Saw meets Speed. Okay. So I'm like, okay, so Speed is, you know, the dude in the, the bus that can't slow down or it's gonna blow up. Saw is this killer guy who has these people and making them do obstacles to save their own lives. So I mesh them together. I now have a woman who can't stop running or her daughter will die. And she has to, along with running, has to do these various like uh, feats that he makes her do and stuff like, oh, she has to run to this point in this amount of time and go. If you don't, then your daughter's friend who I also have kidnapped is gonna die. So I'm combining those two things. So there's your homework. 
let's give you like a couple of uh, <laughs> comps or whatever to come up with. So, okay. So, how about sixteen candles meets Home Alone? Okay, sixteen candles and Home Alone. So we're gonna take those two movies and we're gonna merge them together. So sixteen candles. You got a story about a girl who it's her birthday and everyone seems to have forgotten that it's her birthday. Uh, Home Alone is a guy who. His parents go on vacation and leave him there. <laughs> awesome. All right. So, we got a kid who's home alone. It's his birthday. All right. So, we've got kid's birthday. Uh, he wakes up. Nobody remembers it's his birthday. He goes off. He comes home to a house that is full of stuff for a surprise party, but everyone else is gone. They set up and they left him alone. So, while he's at the surprise party waiting around his own party, uh, some people try to break into his house. Luckily, he's got things already around now that he can use to defend himself. He has a banner that he turns into a giant slingshot to shoot the uh, bad guys across the street. Uh, they come in. Oh, look, here's birthday cake with, with uh, trick candles on it. So he lights the trick candles. Now he's got a roaming candle torch that he can use as, as defense and, and shoot it off like a big firework at people. Uh, and then the parents, once he's defeated the bad guys and they come home, Everybody comes home forgetting that they set up for this birthday party. Don't know why there's all this mess here until the mom finds the uh, the banner at the end. And then, oh, by the way, your birthday present happens to be something he destroyed while trying to do it. Idea off the top of my head. It probably sucks. I know it sucks, but that's kind of what the comp game is. You come up with things. They may not be good. They may be amazing. It's kind of a thing of trying to figure out how to meld the two things together because there isn't... I'm a firm believer that there are no more original stories left to tell because we've been telling stories since the dawn of time. The trick is to find new ways into the stories. And the reason I have the comp game is a fantastic way of doing that is taking two stories that already exist and finding where they meet in the middle. Was it the Venn diagram where they've got the circles and things wow. over here? So finding those things is, is a great way to, to create your own story by melding other stories already existing. Obviously, don't be don't be super obvious about it. Like I just was with this sixteen candles and home alone. Um, like I said, with the run, I I knew it had to be something that couldn't stop moving from speed, and there had to be a serial killer with obstacles like Saw. And so I created a whole new character that went into there uh, and how to mesh them together. Like she's no longer on a bus now; she's running. You know, so find the the original idea in them. Um, another thing you can do is. Coming up, finding a movie you like, but that had a shit ending. Can I say shit? I'm sorry. I used to have a crappy ending. <laughs> um, and uh, tweak it to, okay, how would you have ended this story? Can you now write a story that ends that way and has a different beginning? You know, so, so you can always borrow from other things. Like, um, even and people are borrowing, even even uh, William Shakespeare was borrowing from people. You know, uh, Romeo and Juliet was not an original thing. He stole Romeo and Juliet from like a Greek mythology thing, and then just made his own tweaks to it. You know, so we can make our own tweaks to everything. So your homework is to find a story that already exists, right. find a way to spin it, and make it a completely a new original story. Okay, Argo and Sleeping with the Enemy. <laughs> Oh crap, can we just cut? I don't wanna do that anymore. Oh geez. <laughs> we can end it there, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to throw out that one. <laughs> okay, no, now we I'm got thinking it. about it though. <laughs> no, I'm thinking just, about that, that was one. Just, that was just for fun. No, we won't do that one. <laughs> so somebody got kidnapped 
And it was it turns out that it was his lover. But in, in order to in order to save his lover, he has to make a movie that involves his lover. <laughs> this actually sounds like a good one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, this is a fun game. This should be a party game. Yeah, that's, you should, I, I can see Michael's Crafts. There is a similar party game. Oh, uh, Pitch Storm yeah. is similar. Yeah. That one it doesn't do it doesn't do quite the same thing. It doesn't take movies and make you combine them. Pitch Storm is uh, it's a card game where on each on the cards they have different elements like a certain type of character and a certain scenario. Oh. And you have to come up with the story that uses that, and you're pitching it, and then um, it has kind of like a an apples to apples component. So there's a judge, and the judge is actually throwing out things to. They're actually being the executive, you know. Right. And so while you're telling the story, at any point they can stop you, be like, oh, but what if? And then they have an executive card that has like some random thing that they throw in there, <laughs> some note that they're like, oh, what if? You know, you're t so I'm telling my story of Run. You know, the the woman who's Let's say, let's say my thing was a detective and, and running. And so like I'm telling the story, okay, so she's running and the detect or the uh, bad guy calls her and tells her she has to get to this certain point. And he goes, oh, let me stop you. What if suddenly aliens <laughs> dropped out? So, you know, it's a bizarre little game like that. It's a similar concept, but not quite the same. I, I've thought about trying to, to do that, but I'm, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure what the legality would be of uh, as far as like copywriting stuff, you know, putting mm. out a game where um, where it's like a bunch of movie things and you're having to come on, you can do it on your own. So you know, it's not really something that I feel needs to have it, but I'm like, it could be like a extra thing to go with the book, I guess. Yeah, that's like, true. <laughs> of your 365 tips, which is one or two that you have the most trouble following yourself? That's tricky. That's tricky, tricky, tricky. Let's find out. Well, okay, self-fulfilling prophecy. Tip number 10. <laughs> that one, my sister, again, my sister's a psychologist, gets on me all the time and stuff. Um, can I actually just read it or no? Sure, please do. All right. And it actually starts with my little sister's psychologist. Oh, See, nice. she's the one who inspired this. Tip number 10, self-fulfilling prophecy. My little sister is a psychologist. She loves to warn me against self-fulfilling prophecies. What's that? Basically, if you think something will happen, it might happen. But if you think something won't happen, it definitely won't happen. Keeping a positive attitude keeps you in a better mood and ensures you're working towards staying that way. But if you think negatively, believe you're going to fail, you will fail. Because you'll get it in your head that you're going to fail and you'll subconsciously keep yourself in the failing mindset, making it nearly impossible to succeed. Don't get yourself into a negative self-fulfilling prophecy. Don't tweet it. Don't say it. Don't even think it. Stay positive. I like that. That is one I definitely have trouble with because I'm wanting to get meetings for these awesome new shows coming out, but nobody's returning phone calls. Or And so I'm like, oh, this is never going to... Especially when you're getting on Twitter and, and Facebook and you're friends with people who already are professional writers. You're hearing about all the cool shows that they're getting meetings for, or you're hearing about them having like a sale meeting next week with ABC to sell their show to them, or they just got this really cool assignment through Crypt TV to write a horror series for them. That's also daunting when you're trying to do it and not doing it. So when I start saying, oh, I'm never gonna get there because I haven't gotten there yet, now I'm keeping myself in that mindset that I'm never gonna get there. And, and keep failing and failing and failing. Whereas if I keep, that's fantastic for them, I'm gonna get there really soon, you might actually get there really soon now because now you're striving towards it. Whereas as soon as I get the depression of, 
I'm never gonna get there. Well, right, because now I'm gonna stop doing working as hard because what's the point anymore, right? That's true. So that's definitely a pitfall that I have a problem with, and she will tell you that that's absolutely true. We just had this conversation last night. <laughs> so that's one. That's, any, any other? And that's a really good one. Yeah, that was the first one that came to mind about that. Um, let's see. Turn off Facebook is tip 54. <laughs> Procrastination much? Yes, I do. Um, let's see. Those are probably the two big ones I have a problem with. Okay. Those are good. Oh, female descriptions. I definitely accidentally, at least on my first drafts, will definitely be using things talking about like how attractive someone is. And it's just not really stuff that flies anymore, especially when you're doing it only with female characters and not with guys. Like why is all your female characters attractive females, but all your men are just who they are? You know, hmm. it, it seems a lot of, um, I'll even, and this one's a short one, so I'll even read this one for you. Beautiful, gorgeous, stunning, sexy, a knockout. The kind of girl that is so hot, that would be so hot if she didn't have makeup. <laughs> Do you see where I'm going with this? Sure. Using these sorts of statements to describe your character is boring and flat and a bit sexist, even if it's not meant to be. But there's no normal girls in your script. They're just all gorgeous pieces of ass. Huh, but then the problem is that a lot of writers will have those descriptors for the women. You know, they'll have like Debbie, 34, hot blonde, or, you know, Jessica, age 26, is an attract, would be very attractive without her glasses or something. But then the men are Dan, 54, the kind of guy you don't want to get in a fight with. <laughs> How does that tell you what is about, you know, you're using looks of the girls, but for guys, you're using personality traits. Why? You know, so I, I feel like I fall in that, especially in my first, in my early drafts, like when I'm doing like a first draft of the script, because I'm in my head, like the first thing that comes to my mind is, is what type of person, like what they look like so I can figure out who, who would play them. Because I like to kind of sometimes cast in my head so I can kind of think of mannerisms and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so the first thing that comes to my mind is, is what they look like. I feel like a lot of writers probably have that same issue, but the problem is, we're only doing it for the women. I'm not. I'm not telling you how ruggedly handsome Bill is. <laughs> you know. Well, so well, what if it was a, a writer that was attracted to Bill, whether they were male or female, mm -hmm. and they this is what was visually appealing to them. And so if they were at a coffee shop and they saw Bill walk by, they would be like, "Wow, he is ruggedly handsome. Oh my goodness!" And wh whoever whoever the writer's perspective is, sure. they're just writing who they find attractive. And I, I think it comes to not knowing your character well enough yet because you're just going on that initial instinct. You know, if I see somebody at a party, I can see, okay, they're attractive or they look like a freak or whatever. I don't know who they are yet. So I can't tell you, oh, this is like somebody that, you know, they're very soft spoken until you get on something that they're passionate about because I don't know that yet. I'm just looking at them. So that might be an issue of like, you're writing the script and you're not quite sure who the person is quite yet, especially if you're not outlining, but I outline. So my problem is just that it's, I'm going with the visual first and, and worrying about character in like later drafts. Cause I'm, you know, still tell, I, I'm, I know what they're gonna do. I just don't know who they are yet sort of thing, you know? So, mm. um, yeah. so then for someone who's writing a character that they are attracted to, attracted to sure. whatever the, the gender, um, 
not focusing so much on looks? Right, because especially if you're not doing it across the board, if you're telling every person what every person looks like, that is one thing. It's also gonna be a little boring by telling what every single person looks like. I hate reading the scripts, what they're wearing. There are so <laughs> many, I've read so many scripts where they tell me the costume that they're wearing in every single scene. I don't need to know that we're blue jeans here, but they wore khakis over here. It's not important. It's not story, right? That's set dressing, you know, and, but so like if you're, if you're gonna go and tell what every single, even, even using ethnicities, I feel like it falls in the same category. You know, if you're gonna tell the ethnicity of every single character, great. But if you're assuming white and you're just pointing out that this person's black, like that feels racist kind That's of, true. you know? Yeah. Um, like, so either across the board, tell whoever, tell what everyone looks like, or across the board, don't tell us what everyone looks like and tell us who they are. Got it, okay, that makes sense. I like that. I'm not sure which tip it is, but let people read your stuff versus don't show your unfinished manuscript to anyone. So I think the, the trick there is the unfinished aspect. Everybody, and this is another tip that's in the book that you'll probably hear frequently, is that the first draft of everything sucks. I don't care how good you are, your first draft is terrible compared to what you can make it. So if it's unfinished, it's already shit. Don't show it to people because they're gonna judge you based on what they've read. So if the thing is not done yet, don't, don't give it to people to put in their eyes because if it's not up to par, that's all they're gonna see is that you're a subpar writer. Um, on the other side though of needing to show your stuff, once it's ready, get it out to the world. I've met many writers who are very precious about their material and they won't enter screenplay contests because they're afraid that people are gonna steal it, which almost never actually happens. There are a, obviously a couple cases like the whole thing with the Matrix way back when stuff that, oh, it was stolen from, I don't know if it's true or not, but there are there have probably been like a couple of thieveries along the way, but it's very infrequent because it would cost the, the uh, production companies way less money to just buy your script than it would to pay off a lawsuit against them for stealing stuff. Um, but if you don't show your stuff out there, either whether it be out of fear of them stealing it or out of fear that it's not good enough, you'll never know if it could get sold anywhere. If, you, if you're like, oh, well, I don't know if it's good enough, so I don't wanna show anyone because I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about the quality of it. It might not be good. Well, then you're never gonna know if it's good enough because nobody has been able to read it to tell you if it's good enough. Um, so it absolutely needs to get out there, but not before it's ready. Okay, that's good. Have a laugh every 10 pages, a scare every 10 pages, and action every 10 pages. Sure, so this goes with the genres. So the, the trick of, you know, if it's a comedy, if it's supposed to be a comedy, and I'm reading it, and I'm 50 pages in, and I have not even smiled, it's <laughs> probably not funny. Um, so the trick is to, whatever your genre is for the script, have an element of that genre, like every 10 pages. Um, that way it keeps it fresh in your head that, oh, this is supposed to be scary because this scary thing just happened here and now it's happening again. Um, or comedy, oh, I just laughed you know, a couple of pages ago. Here's another joke, okay, this is clearly a comedy. Because if you stretch out, using comedy as the best example, if you go too long and it's not funny, that's a drama. It's not a comedy anymore. Um, or if, if you're writing a drama and I don't care about anything that's happening, it's just boring. But if it's a horror and nothing scary happens, it, how, is that, how is that a horror at that point? You know, it might be a thriller, you know, because there's, there's a fine line going between thriller and horror. Uh, but if, it's, if there's not scary stuff happening, it's not a horror because it's not scary. So 
Yeah, so the, the every 10 pages is basically just keeping that genre continuing throughout the whole script. What's your favorite tip of the 365? My favorite of the 65? Uh, I would say, let's see if I can find it here. Um, okay, so I'm gonna say it's my favorite because I think it's the one that gives the most information. It's actually several tips in a row. I'm just having problem figuring out where and here it is, is actually about writing will not make you rich. A lot of people seem to think that, oh, I'm gonna sell my script, quit my day job, I'm gonna be a screenwriter forever, it's gonna be awesome. That's not the case though, and if I can find, I think it's like three or four tips in a row, I can tell you exactly why. Um, but basically, the money that you think you're gonna make is not all yours, for starters. Because A, you gotta think about taxes. You know, depending on where you live, you're gonna have federal taxes taken out of it, state taxes taken out of it, uh, self-employment tax taken out of it and city tax taken out of it, depending on where you live. You're also gonna have all the percentages from your reps taken out of it. And so suddenly you've got like your $100,000 payday and you're getting like 40,000 left of it that's yours and now it doesn't look like such a fantastic payday anymore. Common misconceptions about what a writer should do after their script is finished. Let's see, one is getting your script registered with the WGA versus having it copyrighted versus mailing it to yourself. I've seen many writers who still believe that if you mail your script to yourself, that counts as a copyright. No, it does not. It will not hold up in court. The only thing that will hold up in court is a copyright where it has an official document attached to it that says this script was, doc was copyrighted on this date. Uh, WGA registration is still better than mailing it to yourself, but it's not quite as good as a copyright, um, especially with the way that they change uh, like their, their copyright or their registration and stuff only goes like overall, it doesn't go like per draft, whereas the copywriting, you're gonna to wanna to copyright each, each thing, that way you get proof of it. It's a little more expensive to copyright, but it's the safest thing if one of those very rare stealings ever happen. What's a paranoid screenwriter? The people who are afraid that their stuff is gonna get taken, people who won't send their stuff out to competitions, won't send their stuff out to producers without an NDA, never ever send an NDA to a producer. Be like, oh, you can't read my script until you, no, they'll just give you your NDA back. Be like, well, then I don't need to read your script. Um, which I've met several people who think that they need to send an NDA out in order to get a producer to read. No, the producer is not gonna send that NDA. You need to send an NDA for the producer possibly if you, if you wanna work on the project that they're, needing to hire a writer for, you know, to, to save their butts, that you're not then gonna take their idea and go write it yourself without them. Uh, but they will not sign an NDA for you. How about um, put it in a drawer for a month? Oh yeah, um, I, because you fall in love with your writing. You, you spend so much time coming up with this story, you think it's fantastic. It's gonna be very hard to find things wrong with it if you still think it's fantastic. So I put the script away, work on something else in the meantime, then come back to it because then I'm not in love with it anymore. In fact, I probably have forgotten what some of the stuff even was. And then when you're reading it, you can see all the stuff that now sucks. And you're like, oh, this needs to be fixed. Like, why didn't I? And you're gonna feel dumb for not knowing it. I'm like, why did I even write this? It doesn't make sense with this part. But if you, if you, because you need to do the rewriting. Like, like I said, first draft sucks, period end of story, across the board, no matter what you write, it, the very first thing you write is awful. Um, and it's gonna need to be rewritten in order for other people to see it. Because again, you want, like we said, you, you wanna send your stuff out there to, to get eyes on it. 
Um, but you want to do that once it's in a place where it's, how do I want to say this? Where it's, a, where it's good enough, right? So you need to do the rewrites. And if you do rewrites immediately, you're probably not gonna be changing much because you st it's all still fresh in your head about what you're writing and why you're writing it and the mood you were in when you were writing it, how much you loved it and oh, this song that was playing was so good and so inspiring. <laughs> and well, now you're reading it a month later, you don't have that song playing. You don't really remember what why you wrote certain lines of dialogue. And now you're like, wait, this, this character made a choice that doesn't really make much sense. and. Why would this person talk like this? That doesn't that doesn't sound like her. Why? So then you get to see all the flaws coming out that you wouldn't have known uh, had they been around. Like absence makes the heart grow fonder with people, with scripts. Absence makes you realize what isn't so great anymore. What's a serial starter, and how do I know if I'm one? Serial starter is somebody who starts writing a script, then gets an idea for another script, starts writing that script. Then gets an idea for another script, starts writing that script. So they have all these projects that they've started writing, but they haven't finished any. So I keep what I call an idea book. It's this little moleskin notebook about like palm size. Any movie idea, TV idea, anything like that, I jot down the note in there. I do not bother writing anything until I have finished what I'm currently writing on. Because otherwise I'll never finish. Um, so yeah, a serial starter is one who starts project after project after project without ever actually finishing any of them with the mindset, oh, I'll come back to it, but you never will because you're always gonna have new ideas that are new and exciting and fresh and you wanna start writing it while it's fresh in your head and then you just kinda, everything else kinda keeps getting pushed further and further back as these new ideas erupt. What is a, uh, a worry wart screenwriter? Somebody who's constantly fearful of the writing process um, someone who's constantly thinking that they're not good enough, so they don't want to send anything out. Um, somebody who is afraid of, of getting their material out there, even afraid of writing the material, think they have writer's block, which doesn't exist by the way. Writer's block is typically a combination of either fear or perfectionism or laziness. Those three things combined make writer's block. So worry wart is someone who's afraid of getting writer's block, but it doesn't exist. So don't be afraid, just write your butt off. Um, yeah, somebody who just, they're not progressing because they may be fearful of success or fearful of failure, both of which are very real things, which I, I would have never thought, why would anyone be afraid of success? Right. Well, the problem is if you succeed, now there's all this pressure on you to keep succeeding. So now you're, it's almost like, oh God, now I'm gonna fail. Or if you succeed, oh, now I have to be a success. I don't know what a successful person looks like. How do I maintain this? I'm a fraud, you know? And then you start, start getting into the whole, uh, like the I'm not good enough sort of scenario and all because you succeeded and you how, do you, how do you follow up that success, you know? Fear of failure, super obvious. You're afraid you're gonna fall flat on your face. Well, if you never try, you can't fall flat on your face, sure, but you also can't succeed at that point. What kind of work do you do before working on a screenplay? What's the pre-work? Coming up with ideas, which we talked about a few different ways to try and do that. Um, outlining is, again, like for me, outlining is the most important process. Again, it might not be for other people, is for me, I have to outline and, and hammer that story out before I even start page one of any script.
whether it be TV or feature or short or whatever. Um, so that's, yeah, that's my pre-process is first coming when I, when I first, and I come up with ideas different ways. Some of them are from dreams I've had. Some of them are from watching other movies or reading other scripts or doing the comp game of combining things like that. Um, I actually was reading, at least I've been reading some of the blacklist scripts and I've actually come up with two ideas in the last couple of days that sprung out of my head from other scripts that I was reading that have nothing to do with the scripts I was reading, but something that they said in the script tweaked an idea. I was like, oh, that would be a really cool idea. What if I use like this line that they use, but then that strikes this whole new concept, you know? Um, so like one of them, like uh, the, the the mountain climbing movie oh, right. that I was talking uh -huh. about, Haunted Mountain. So they, you know, they're they, um, she's along with climbing mountain. Her her team with her is basically making a documentary about her. Um, you know, so they've got like a bit of a found footage, like going back and forth between like some found footage and real life stuff. Um, so I was like, okay, well, what if we had took that found footage aspect of it, and we had somebody, you know, also. The, the point of the movie uh, of the the mountain climbing thing is it's a mountain that no one's ever climbed. So I'm like, okay, well, if we have somebody going going or doing something that no one's ever done before and getting it all on camera, and then I'm like, oh, what if we made it a, a long distance space travel movie, <laughs> and we take an Elon Musk type of character who's nice. invented this brand new uh, method of space travel, and he's going to be the one to test it out, and he's getting everything awesome. on footage, and boom, had nothing <laughs> to do with that script other than there's cameras involved and going somewhere where no one's ever gone before. <laughs> so that came out of that idea. And then I read another script about, um, it was, it was a, a pilot, I think. Um, no, it was a movie. It was a movie and I'm coming up with a pilot. Uh, the idea I had was a pilot where the, uh, the guy, they, were, they had this um, technology where they were able to go into, it was a, uh, I can't remember the name of the movie, the script, it was not a blacklist script. It was a soldier who she had PTSD and they were trying to like fix her PTSD by having, instead of having regular therapy sessions like this, they came up with this VR scenario situation where they, they had taken um, all of the uh, audio footage of like the specific um, mission that she was on that kind of triggered the PTSD and she was having to relive it, but she was realizing that there were things wrong with the thing like they, they had some of their their facts wrong like who went into the building first they had wrong and they had like um the color of a building wrong like some minor stuff that seemed minor and but later on in the script became major things so from that i came up with the idea of oh well what if we have a tv series a detective show where they have this technology to basically rebuild the crime scene in a virtual world and go in there and take different people's like the different eyewitness testimonies and then the different like the splatter tests or whatever and they can rebuild the entire thing and then see how the crime actually happened i'm like that seems in my head that seems like a cool idea show that i would watch you know i don't know i'm not sure how many seasons i would watch but, but it's at least a cool little idea came from just like a piece of technology you know so i come up with come up with story ideas from pretty much anywhere uh, either stuff I've seen, stuff I've done, dreams. I write the ideas down in my idea book where I have, at this point, literally hundreds of TV and movie ideas. I think the last time I actually counted it was 212. Um, but that's, it's just like a little one sentence thing. In some cases it's like just a title of something that popped in my head. And whenever I need something new to write, I go through there, try to figure out what seems like viable ideas right now, what actually sounds fun to write right now, because not every idea you have is gonna be something fun. Um, sometimes it's like big, cool action stuff, and you wanna write those, and sometimes it's like, 
very small, personal, dramatic, indie type stuff, you know, that you might not be in the mood for right now because it's going to depress the hell out of you while you're writing it. So find something that sounds like something I want to write. Then I spend time actually coming up with, okay, here's the one sentence. Where's the story in that? And doing my outlining process for that. I do all my outlining by hand. I find it much easier for the ideas to flow when I'm sitting there writing it out. Again, my handwriting is so bad that sometimes I can't read it afterwards, but I do my best. Um, and then I'll go through either rereading it in there, making changes in the notebook, or typing it all up and then realizing, oh, this doesn't work, and then can change things from the typed up version of the outline and, and hammering it out till it's bulletproof. And then I write the first draft of the script. That was a very long answer for that question. I apologize. <laughs> what do writers get wrong with the first 10 pages of a screenplay? Not being interesting. Uh, I've seen too many people have flashbacks in the first couple pages. It'll start with a flat. What are you flashbacking from? If that's, <laughs> if that's the first thing you're having happen. That doesn't make any sense. Um, not giving us enough about the character we're going to be following. Like a lot of a lot of horror, especially you know, will start off with something that's has to do with like the killer, like how they're killing people, but it has nothing to do with the characters we're actually gonna be following, you know. So it's like a little teaser thing. So it, it does its job in telling us, okay, this is what the movie's gonna be about. We still don't even know who we're gonna be following. So I feel like in the first ten pages, you need to have who we're gonna be following, what the story's gonna be about, be interesting for the love of God, um, and give us some some reason to, to turn the page to go on to the next uh, pages and, and the rest of the script. Did you like Guardians of the Galaxy? The first one I loved it, the second one not so much. Why? Um, I feel like they went too big with the second movie um, and then couldn't wrap it up in a way that made any sense. Um, they also, I felt like in the first movie did like a really good job of um, taking the humor and the action and the drama and melding them together in a good way. In the second movie, I felt like they went way too much with the funny because they like that was what they were banking on from the first movie was that it was a superhero movie that was kind of a comedy. And now they added too much comedy and went too big with who the villain was and they could never get back to the main core of the story. And they kept the main characters apart for too long before they brought them back together. So it was like their character dynamics, they weren't able to play off of each other because they were suddenly not the same scenes anymore. And so all the stuff that worked really well in the first scene, the character dynamics, the comedy, um, you know, a, a medium level of threat for them, they just kind of like went off and off the handles and, and lost track of everything in that second movie. On the flip side, what about Sicario, the first I have one? Not even oh, you, seen not Sicario. Even, okay, the, okay. So we want. Because I was going to ask, what, what, what do you think? Sometimes is the breakdown between the first one? Is it because the the first film of of, of a trilogy or whatever is is is, um, is a new world? It's fresh. The characters are interesting because sure. we want to get to know them. But then we tire of them, or. And I'm not saying that happened with Sicario, Sure, by the way. I, like, I haven't seen yeah. Sicario, either of them, so I have no opinion on that movie whatsoever, mm. other than it's a cool title. Um, <laughs> I would say that going from an original movie to the sequel, the problem, well, I feel like because you, you need to follow it up with something that's a little bit bigger because the, the whole point of any movie is rising stakes throughout the course of it. You know, you're starting with someone who's in their regular normal world and then fucking with their lives. 
And so going from a first movie to a second movie, you want to keep that going. But I feel like the two big pitfalls of a sequel is either A, it goes too far, um, where it's like a huge leaps and bounds beyond what the first movie was. And it's how did they get there from here? Like that's such a huge jump. Or they don't have even as big of stakes where they kind of like pull it back a little bit too much. Um, I don't know that we get necessarily tired with the characters per se. Like I will watch every Marvel movie that ever comes out for the rest of my life because it's cool and I love it. But I, and I'm not getting tired of the characters because they are keeping it fresh with the types of situations that the characters are in. Same thing goes with television series. You know, they're constantly getting like more and more dramatic or bigger and badder characters and they're different types of characters that, that they're having to face. Uh, I mentioned The Flash earlier. Like the, the problem with like the first three seasons of The Flash, the bad guy was always another speedster. So he's just going against somebody who has the exact same power set as him. So then with later seasons, they started giving him characters who had totally different power sets. So I think it was like two seasons ago, maybe, possibly three, they had uh, the thinker was his bad guy, you know, where his, his the, bat, the thinker's superpower is just figuring out everything like five, 10 steps ahead of the flash, knowing everything that's gonna happen and can set up all the, the dominoes so they fall exactly the way he wants it. Um, and then, you know, so it's like something that Flash couldn't beat that because he's really, really fat. He's a smart guy because, you know, he, he works uh, for, for the, the, the police department, you know, in the forensics department. So he's a smart dude, but his thing is think is moving really fast. So how does he compete with somebody who is thinking everything you could possibly do, no matter how fast you move, he knows all the possibilities and has set up, you know, based on that. So it needs to keep changing and evolving as opposed to just being the same story over and over, but you need to make sure to not go too far with the evolution to the point that it's not realistic anymore. Do you have a hard time getting people in higher positions to read your screenplays? Oh God, yes. It's like, it's the big catch 22 that is one of those, like the conceptions that were true, uh, absolutely is the, is the catch 22 issue because people, producers don't wanna read your work unless it's coming to them from someone they trust. So if you don't have an agent, you're probably not gonna get read by Netflix. In fact, with Netflix, you won't even get read if you don't have a showrunner lined up already even. Um, they, because there are so many people writing scripts that first of all, most of the scripts coming in are gonna be from amateur writers. And so they can't read all these thousand. I think it was something like, a, what was it? 10,000 scripts get registered with WGA every year. That's not even counting like, a, going to copyright, you know, so that's a lot of material coming in and most of it is coming from amateurs when you think that there's only like 4,000 people in the WGA. Um, so they're not gonna wanna sit there and spend all their time doing that. So they're only gonna read vetted material. And the ways to vet someone is having it come in through an agent, although that's different now with the, the strike stuff going on, you know, with, with the WGA versus the agencies um, or a manager that they trust or another producer that they know who, who maybe has read it, you know, and is like, oh, this isn't for us, but it might be for you sort of thing. Or if they have a personal connection with you, which is where the whole networking thing comes in. Um, and if it's not coming from one of those vetted avenues or a screenplay contest, if you won a script contest, then they'll probably wanna read it. But unless there's a way that they can vet it, you're a nobody to them and they don't wanna read 10,000 nobody scripts if they have this pile of like 10 that they trust. 
And how did you get your agent? I got. I don't have an agent. I have a manager. Oh, I'm sorry. And she kind of came to me again. It was through Twitter that she found me. That's great. Uh, last year, um, during staffing season, they had the the WGA staffing boost tag. You know, the hashtag WGA staffing boost. And I had posted something on on there that um, Latoya Morgan, who had started it, like retweeted, and that was where all I suddenly got all these followers coming from. And then my manager happened to see it the two and was like, well, what kind of stuff do you have? And so I pitched her a couple of things. She looked me up on IMDb and was like, okay, send me this and this. And then she loved my stuff. So she's repping me and um, sending my stuff out there. Like I said, I got her at the very end of staffing season last, last year. So it was like by the time I was even repped for her to start sending stuff out, like almost every show was already fully staffed. So I couldn't really get any meetings last year. but. Fingers across for this season. I, I know I'm, they're, they're still shooting pilots. Um, so a lot of the things that are fully staffed now are the stuff that went straight to series already. But the things that just got pilot orders, uh, they won't be doing staffing for probably another like three, two to, two to five weeks basically. You know, like beginning of March they'll start probably. Um, so fingers are still crossed. I know there's at least three shows that I'm on a read list for right now that hoping that goes well. But yeah, so my manager kind of just came to me based on a tweet. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, I, you know, especially after years of sending stuff out to reps and either them not connecting with the material or them meeting with me and we just decided it wasn't a good fit, you know, based on what they want to do and what I want, I want to do and that sort of thing. So um, it definitely felt like a bizarre turn of events to go from me doing all this work of like querying everybody and not really getting anywhere with it to be like, here's a tweet about who I am and what I write and then a manager coming to me being like, that sounds great, let me read you, you know, so. Do you think you were just ready though? I mean, would you have been ready two years earlier? I feel like I've been ready for years. Um, maybe not for television as much. Uh, like I said, I moved out here because I wanted to work in TV. My experience before I moved out here was like, I had written a couple of specs for existing shows to enter into the, into the different fellowships. And then I got hired to write the eight episodes of that British sci-fi series that, again, still hasn't even picked up. Um, but I feel like I'm more ready now to deal with people than I would have been when I first moved out here, having not known what to expect. Because again, when I was in Virginia, all my communication was either on the phone or via email. And now that I'm here, I need meetings. It's all about the meetings. So. I don't think I would have been able to handle a meeting when I first moved out here, as was proof, like I said, my first meeting two days after I got here was not good. So now that I've met with a bunch of people and I've done the networking thing and I've done talking and then now I actually know some people in the industry that I didn't know when I moved out here, um, maybe I'm in a slightly better position for her to actually do something with, with me, you know? I feel like though people in whatever pursuit they have out here, they need those like, couple bad experiences sure. to kind of like earn their stripes a little yeah, bit. And, you yeah, you don't really know necessarily how it all works until you're in there. You know, you can read all the book, you can read this book, you can read, <laughs> available on Amazon, um, you can read all the books, you can read all the articles that come through, you can watch all of the videos, uh, but until you're actually doing it yourself, all you have is theory, you know, it's kind of doing, it's like doing physics without, ever doing physics sort of thing. You know, I, I can read you a textbook. It doesn't mean you have any idea what it all said until you sit down and do an experiment, you know. Um, so yeah, those bad experiences are, are what helps you move along to even understand how the industry works. 
Right. And I think it, it, it's good to get knocked down a couple times because then it just, it just, there's something that kind of fortifies you a little bit. And so when you actually have a good experience, I don't know if you go as high because you kind of, like, it keeps you a little more level headed, I think. At well, least that's my opinion. Um, I was trying to think of a great quote and it just fell out of my head. Um, but it's one of those things where you, you, you don't know what you, have until you've lost it sort of thing oh, okay mm -hmm. so i feel like it's almost like a reverse of that you don't know where you can go until you've already like seen the bad stuff like you don't know how success is going to look so you've seen how failure looks you know that's true mm -hmm. i like that that's good you've mentioned reading list a couple times can you tell us what reading list sure is? so like for the shows um it's mainly a tv thing um you know the the showrunner will get a stack of scripts that they need to go through so they can try and pick who they want to hire for their their show. Um, so I've gotten a couple of my scripts on that stack, but it just hasn't, you know, like I said, when, last year it was at the very end of the season. So it was like, they only had like one spot left to fill by that point and they still have a, a stack of scripts there. So, but you can't even get on that stack of scripts without the representative to like either a manager or an agent, you know, pitching your stuff over there. You can do a little bit more with Twitter now because after the whole thing last year, when the WGA and the agents clashed, uh, a lot of showrunners like Latoya Morgan and some others, uh, Liz Alper, um, Javier, what's Javi's last name? I'm drawing a blank on Javi's last name. But like these big showrunners that are like, okay, well, we're not dealing with agents anymore, so writers, who should we be looking at? And that's where the WGA staffing boost came in of writers who are reading other people and be like, oh, this person has this spec that's amazing. You need to check it out. They would be great in your room. Before that, it was agent or nothing, basically. Agent or manager or nothing. Like, So you can't even get on this on the list. Um, I got myself on a couple of read lists using the WGA staffing thing. Um, those shows ended up not getting picked up, so I didn't even need to really meet with the, the writers, but it was like writers who had a show that was really cool to me. I loved the pilot when I read it. And they're like, yeah, if this had picked up, I'll, I'll take a look at your stuff. You know, that would have, ha would have never happened before the whole mess with the, the WGA and the agencies last year. Um, so yeah, that's what the list, the reading lists are, is, is the list of scripts that the, uh, the showrunners are supposed to go through. And, and it's, again, if they don't have to go through the whole stack, they're not gonna. So if, if you're coming in there from an, a rep that they trust or if another reader that they, that they know suggested you, you're gonna get read before the ones that are just you know, randomly submitted to them. Have you always had thick skin when it comes to writing criticism? God, no. Um, I'm not even convinced I have thick skin now because I, I'm, I'm very good at taking a note from someone and trying to figure out like how to fix it or if I don't understand the note, like how to find the note within the note sort of thing and see like if what the, the deeper problem is to fix it overall. But I still, there are still some notes that make me upset where I'm like, how could you not understand this? It's right there on the page. <laughs> um, yeah, so it doesn't happen as frequently as it did when I was younger and, and was newer, but, and I try to keep that at bay where if like, if something even irks me just a little bit, like, thank you for the note. And then I'll come back to it later and be like, okay, maybe there was something there. Let's take a look at it, calm myself down. Uh, but nobody's perfect, and I sure as hell am not either. That's funny. Okay, good. Um, what would you tell someone who wanted to quit their day job today 
so that they could pursue screenwriting full time. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Again, like there, I couldn't find the chapters in the book uh, in a quick. But you're not, you're not going to get rich right away, and you're definitely not going to get rich right away without having some way to pay your rent. And there's no reason to go homeless in the pursuit of it. Like there are plenty of people. Uh, what's her name? J.K. Rowling. Like she was. Going again, like how many like hundreds of rejections before her book finally got picked up? She, if she didn't have her job, like she would have been like homeless, like even more because I've read stories where she couldn't feed her kids or whatever. It's like that would have been even worse if she had quit her job to write that book. You don't quit your job until you even and even once you've had a success, you don't unless it's a TV thing where now your new job is writing in a writer's room. Um, because like I said, it, even if you sold your script for a hundred thousand dollars. After you pay all your stuff, you got like $40,000. And how much are you making in the year, right? Like compare that to your job. Like, sure, if you want to take a year off, but don't, if you're quitting it to start pitching stuff, that's insane. I'm sorry. You, <laughs> like, you need to pay rent. You need to eat. You need to feed your kids and family if you have that. Uh, your dog would appreciate having some food as well. Like, do not quit your job until you are making enough of an impact where you can just survive on the screenwriting. That's great. What do you want 20 year olds to know about screenwriting? 20 year olds? All right, it's been a long time for me. I'm 36 now, so. Uh, okay, so not everything has to be a video game or a comic book in movie form. Those are great, but not every movie has to be like, and they're not gonna buy your superhero script unless it's from an IP. Uh, I've made the mistake of writing my own superhero and nobody cares because it's not, it doesn't already have the audience, you know. That's, whereas horror, you can come up with original horror movies and it's awesome, we wanna see it. You can come up with awesome action movies. It's original, we wanna see it. Don't, don't write adaptations First of all, don't write adaptations of things you don't own the rights to. And second of all, don't write an original superhero movie because nobody cares unless it's an adaptation. It's a very oh, interesting thing. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you can get the rights to a superhero, by all means, get the rights and then write it. But don't write your own superhero. And don't try to write an adaptation of something you don't own the rights to. Uh, I've seen a lot of people in the forums, like on, on Facebook, who are wanting to write their own Spider-Man movie. You don't own the rights of Spider-Man. No one will ever see that. And in fact, they may even try to sue you if you try sending it to the people who do own the rights to it. So um, I made that mistake once. Again, when I was first starting out, I wrote a, superhero, a Superman script, not knowing I couldn't do anything with it. Um, I wrote an adaptation of the Vagina Monologues, uh, not knowing that I couldn't do that. And then I got in touch with people, found out the rights already owned, so blah, blah, blah. Didn't work. Um, that's, that's the thing. Don't, don't adapt something you don't own because you're just gonna be disappointed and waste your time. What about advice to 20-year-olds on mindset? Like, don't get too high or too low. I think when you're younger and you come here and everybody's so in awe of, of young people in, in Hollywood, um, it's easy to really, to go on these roller coaster rides because people are telling you how amazing you are sure. or they're either so, telling you you're not and then they just told you yesterday you were. Right, so don't let um, rejection hurt you too bad because they're not necessarily rejecting you, the person, they're rejecting your script. And a lot of people seem to take a, um, 
a rejection of the script as a rejection of them personally, like, like as if, if because I didn't like your script, I hate you. Now, I don't hate you. I don't know you. You could be a wonderful person, but I don't like your script. It's, <laughs> it's not. It's not a great story. I'm sorry. Um, but it has nothing to do with the person. So don't let the rejections be personal for you. And on the flip side, don't rejoice at every minor success or something that even looks like a minor success because it can still fall through. I can't tell you how many times I've had this amazing looking deal that then just gets yanked out from under me for whatever reason. You know, I, I had a producer a few years ago who was gonna pay me like 20 grand to write a, a pirate movie for him. And then all of a sudden his investor who was giving him, it was, it was for like, a, like an $80 million budget or something like that. And then he was like, oh, I have the money, blah, blah. I'm gonna send you the stuff. I'm gonna send you the, the $20,000 check to start writing like next week. Didn't hear from him next week, didn't get a check. So I call him up. Oh yeah, so my investor dropped out. Um, or another one where I was supposed to get hired to write a sequel to a, a horror movie. And then like the producer just stopped communicating with me all of a sudden, no reason given, just stopped. Uh, I even had one producer who literally died during our oh, negotiations. So that didn't happen, you know? So it's like, there's always, always something that can make it go wrong. So don't start celebrating until the check is cleared is the, 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 the rule of thumb I've got on that. Like I, I'm, it's fabulous that people are interested in my stuff, but until like there's a contract signed and money in my hand, it could go wrong at any time. And even after then, there's still plenty of movies that sell for millions of dollars the script, and then the movie never comes out. You know, so uh, stuff dies in development hell every day. You know, uh, so nothing is a success until it's 100% successful. What's your favorite movie about the industry? I really like Trumbo. Uh, that was a really fantastic movie. Um, Why did you like it? Acting, Aside from Brian Cranston. Yeah, yeah, Cranston's amazing in almost every, he's even great in that new Mountain Dew commercial. Are you kidding me? Um, he's fantastic. Seeing how the industry was at that time is interesting to learn. There's been other movies that have shown that, like uh, I don't know if you may have not seen The Majestic with Jim Carrey, uh, where he played a screenwriter who ended up getting blacklisted, you know, um, because they thought that he was a communist or whatever. It's, it's the same time period. And so it's very interesting to see how the, the, all the world of Hollywood is being shaped by hearsay. Yeah. Um, and then to still see how Trumbo and his friends kind of like circumnavigated the issue in a creative, clever way. Like, yeah, they took a huge, cut in their paychecks, but they still did what they love, you know, and yeah, it was just a really interesting look at what the, the industry was like back then and then how people could get around that um, and how they all changed today. And then again, Brian Cranston's a freaking genius. Yes, he so, is. You know. <laughs> What's your biggest screenwriting regret? That I didn't move to LA sooner. I had my first opportunity to move to Los Angeles in 2009, I think it was. Um, I was working on, I was still living in Michigan at the time, uh, working on movie sets as a production assistant. And myself, another PA and a makeup artist were all discussing moving out here together. Hmm. Um, then one of them had a, uh, a sudden, like immediate death in the family that 
Now they and and so now they had to be the sole provider for their family. Oh gosh. Um, and so they really okay. Now I can't make the jump out to L.A. And without them, the other person was like, well, I don't want to go if she's not going to go, kind of thing, you know. And so left just me. And I could absolutely afford to still come out here on my own because I had saved up all the money from like the five or six movies I and, and two TV shows that I had PA'd on out there. But I just didn't. I, I, I don't know if it was, it was one of those fear things where like it was a fear of the unknown sort of thing, you know, whereas like I was going to be fine coming out here with them as like a, um, like a safety net sort of thing. Cause at least I would know somebody cause I didn't know anybody out here. And so I didn't have the courage, the film courage to come out to LA <laughs> when I could have the first time. And so it ended up like losing me, you know, so many years. Cause by the time I did move out here, it was 2016 you know, so now it's like I've lost like eight years of potential experience I could have had out here. Well, there was a lot of fear in 2009 because of the recession. Right. So a lot of people didn't know still what was going to happen and a lot of speculation. So, you know, I wouldn't beat yourself up over that. I mean, it was oh, a scary I, time yeah, for a lot of people. It, sure. And, and it's one of those things where you could, you know you could talk yourself up about any bad decision you make and, and make it seem like, oh, well, it's understandable that you made that choice. At the end of the day, I wussed out. I should have just come out here. Um, obviously, certain things would have gone differently. I would have never met my fiance. Okay. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and stuff. And, or maybe I would have, but, you know, by that point, I would have been hopefully bigger by now. Um, but it's one of those things where like, I, I feel like it, just, it was a missed opportunity that I could have started my life much sooner, I guess, um, mm -hmm. rather than, you know, I would, would have been in my 20s out here. I could have gotten a job, you know, as, as like a, either an assistant somewhere, you know, whether it be a PA on a set or being an assistant like in an office or something like that. Um, but now nobody wants to hire a 36-year-old person, you know, as like the bottom level thing because like the pay is like, minimum wage at this point, you know, and it's like when I'm 20, minimum wage is fantastic. I can live on minimum wage. Of course, there's ramen noodles. What can go wrong? Now that I'm in my 30s, minimum wage would kill me. You know, I would never be able to afford my apartment on minimum wage. I have couldn't, you know, hold up my, my current standard of living and stuff now. So it's like, I feel like I lost out on the chance to live within the means that I had when I was in my 20s rather than the means that I've procured over the years with the experience now. So I have more life experience, but it's less experience I could have been sharing in Hollywood and moving up the ranks already. So it's like I'm already starting at square one in my mid-30s rather than in my mid-20s. Well, this is total cliche, but I don't know if I always believe this, but this is the cliche saying everything happens for a reason. Sure. I don't always subscribe to that. And I know it's just like, can I get any cheesier? But right. um, if we take that and dissect it as, as much as it should be like on a mug and you know, somebody in front of somebody's computer, do you think that's true? Or do you think that we tell ourselves that? I think it's a combination because obviously you can't, it depends on if you believe in fate, I guess. Mm. Um, I'm not a big subscriber in fate because it takes away any choices I would have had, I guess. Um, so on, on, on that side, like it's not, 
It doesn't work out that everything's supposed to happen the way it's supposed to happen because you don't know how it's supposed to happen. That's true. Um, and you can also, if things happen in a different order, you're gonna end up in a different place. So it's kind of a thing of, you would have a different life, which life would be better? The life you would have had or the life you do have? Um, so I don't really know. It, it, I don't know where I would end up, you know, like having been an extra eight years in Los Angeles, would I now be the next Shonda Rhimes? Or would I still be Travis Seppala trying to be Shonda Rhimes? You know, like, um, would I have a lovely, gorgeous fiance? Or would I be alone? Or would I have a different fiance? Would I be hooking up with actresses? <laughs> There's no way of knowing what this would have This is a screenplay right here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You know, it's, um, I think I, there's actually a script that I just read. Um, it was a pilot for this current pilot season. I don't know if it got picked up or not. I think it got pick, bought, picked up the pilot. They haven't announced if it's going, I think it's still shooting. And I can't remember the name of it. I'm terrible at remembering titles. But it is a script that follows along this character. And he makes, he, the, mo the show starts with him at like a crossroads where he has the option of either, after his graduation, of either going with his parents, going with his friends, or going with this girl he likes. Oh. And then the story from there, trisects, I guess you would call it, since he has three different paths, what his life would be in each of the scenarios. Oh, interesting. And so, yeah, and so the show kind of goes along that, where like, it'll be like seeing him, uh, you know, the, the path where he went with his parents, because his, his dad and his granddad were both cops, now he becomes a cop. And so it follows along him being a detective now in, in, this, in the city. The path where he went and followed his friend is he went, uh, because he had graduated with a medical license, he went and just you know, became a doctor and now he's a doctor. And then the third path is he ended up like opening his own business and is living with the, the girl now and stuff. And all three of them have the, have the identical overall um, scenario that is happening and how it's happening differently based on where he's at. So for instance, in the pilot episode, which obviously I haven't read past pilot because it hasn't got picked up yet, is there's a congressman who gets assassinated that in one aspect, as the cop, he's you know following the, the assassination and trying to solve it. When he's a doctor, he actually saved the senator so oh, he didn't wow. die from the assassination attempt. And then when he's with the friend, or when he has his business or whatever, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time and he gets killed instead of the, or he gets shot rather and has to go to the hospital and stuff. And as it shows like how his life would be drastically altered in these three choices. So I don't know where the show is gonna go from there, but the pilot, I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and, and that kind of goes along with what you're saying of like, you know, would it be better? Like, was I, deter was I destined or determined to be where I am now? versus had I made the choice to come out here when I could have, it follows along that same thing as this TV pilot of like there are different forks in the road and each one leads to a different place. You know, if you wanna go with science fiction or um, physic, uh, quantum physics and stuff, you know, of like multiple parallel Earths, you know, there's the, the multi-Earth theory where the, an Earth exists for every possibility. So any choice you've ever made in your life it automatically created new parallel universes. You're in the one where you made your choice, but then over here, you made the other choice. And there's infinite number of those. And so, I don't mean to go all quantum no, theory and stuff, great. but uh, you know, it's one of those things, I don't know if I think I'm destined to be anywhere because there's so many outcomes that are possible. I don't know if 
I'm in the best place or if I would have been in the best place or if there's still best place or if what's happening? I think we can all look at our lives and say, well, if I had just done this earlier, but we don't know if we'd done it earlier, maybe we wouldn't be prepared to handle certain things. Right, but you would also be in a different place entirely mm -hmm. and would have a, like for instance, I had one choice that I could have made. The choice I made was to stay in my hometown and go to work and be a sous chef in my hometown, or I could have gone to Yellowstone National Park and been, started off as a dishwasher there and worked at the ranks. How would things have changed if I would have not stayed home with my parents and gone to Yellowstone? You know, like who would I have met? Who, what would I have learned? What would have happened to me? You know, I would be a very different human being with that experience than I was staying home working in a local restaurant. So I don't know if coming to LA eight years earlier when I could have would have made a huge impact or if it were either for the better or for the worse, you know? Right. Yeah, I don't think for any of us, we, we totally know. Yeah. Do you think a great writer will live forever through their work? I'm gonna say it depends on the story. We remember F. Scott Fitzgerald for The Great Gatsby, but he wrote so many other things that most people don't even know exists. You know, he wrote other novels. He was even a TV writer. <laughs> Nobody could, t I could never tell you what episodes of anything he wrote, <laughs> but I know he wrote television. Uh, but it's like everyone remembers him because of The Great Gatsby, like is all pray at the altar of Gatsby sort of thing, you know? So, but if, if, if he hadn't written The Great Gatsby, he's still a great writer and wrote all this other stuff, but nobody's ever read this other stuff. So, and, and I also feel that it depends on how timely it is versus like current locale, I guess. Um, stuff I write today, 20 years from now, are gonna seem blasé and like out of place and out of touch and, and everything, you know? Like we're, we're in, in, in like a, a field now Looking at comedy, for instance, stuff that is funny now won't be funny later. Like you look at an old Simpsons episode from like the early 90s, it's not funny anymore and is kind of like racist in parts, you know? The whole thing with uh, Apu, the character, that they're apparently oh, axing right. Apu completely or whatever mm -hmm. because people are complaining that it's racist. But right. those complaints were probably still there in the 90s, we just didn't hear them as much because the internet has grown and, and people, um, become more vocal on there, you know, and are able to have a place to vent. So, like for instance, when I was a kid, um, I, I, my, me and my sister are, are big fans of A Christmas Story. Laughed my butt off at the end scene when, you know, when they're in the Chinese restaurant, but now that's like the most racist scene you can imagine, basically, you know? And it's like, it was still racist then, but it was like, you didn't, it was like we didn't know better, I guess, as a society. And the way that we as a society have evolved made it obsolete and crass and should not be laughed at anymore. So things from now may not live on, you know, beyond. So like you could write an amazing story, but 10 years from now, your story may have zero relevance sort of thing. 